Air Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, that sounded weird in my headset. <laughs> I thought like it sounded like a car was going by oh. a high velocity outside, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm here with two guys whose year-long feud will have nothing to do with tonight's show, the leader of the NWO Black and Blue, Alec Bridgen. I'm pretty sore, admittedly. <laughs> and the leader of the NWO Scorpahawk Pack, John Mullins. May your stingers stay strong. <laughs> How's it going tonight, guys? Good, good. I'm doing all right. All right. Well, tonight we're taking a look at Starcade 99, the battle to end the millennium. No, it isn't. Starcade 99 was held on December 19th, 1999 at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C., in front of a very much not sold out crowd of 11,799 fans, 8,582 paid we're down about 4,000 people in the same building. Yowza. Yeah. I think they're worried about Y2K. <laughs> I do have to say, I, I didn't really, really notice in the crowd shots tonight. So we, I noticed it more rewatching it. What you'll see is you'll get a hard camera shot, and what normally is full, you'll get, like, say, six people in a row instead of ten people. Mm-hmm. So it's not like one spot that's sort of cordoned off and is empty, but you get... A guy, like two, three spaces between him and the next person, and you see that sort of spread throughout. So it's yeah, they really should have just squeezed them all into one area, like they do on most shows. Yeah, your free ticket upgrade for being here. <laughs> the show received about a hundred and twenty thousand pay per view buys. Oof, that's just over one fourth of last year's total. It's a bit of a dip, yeah. Really. Yeah, we are back down to the old Starcade totals. Where we used to be in the 100,000 to 140,000 range. But you know their quality. <laughs> so the hot streak is well and truly over, and WCW is back to its old standard in the range of numbers occupied by Starcade's 1988 through 1995. With the WWF's 1999 numbers consistently above 300,000, and WCW's numbers only breaching that once with February's Super Bowl 9. It seems safe to say that WCW was losing the war. Yeah, it seems pretty set. Recognizing that they were falling far behind, WCW decided to change things up this year. In September 1999, Eric Bischoff was relieved of his position and replaced by Bill Bush. Until then, the Vice President of Strategic Planning, a position that I would never have guessed WCW had given what we've seen on some of these shows. Sounds very militaristic, by the way. <laughs> yeah, true. For a wrestling company. Well, you know, Monday Night Wars and all that. Fair enough. <laughs> In October, Bush hired two men to handle the booking. Ed Ferreira and Vince Russo. Rewind a bit. Back in 1996, the WWF wasn't doing so well. 
WCW Monday Nitro beat the WWF's Monday Night Raw in the ratings for close to two years. The WWF's response, thanks in part, though how large a part is debated, to Vince Russo, who became head writer in early 1997, and Ed Ferreira, who joined Russo on the writing team in 1998, was what would come to be known as the Attitude Era, a drastic transformation of their storylines and style to create an edgier, faster-paced product that could attract the audience that they were missing. With the rise of superstars like Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock, and a supervillain in the form of WWF owner Vince McMahon himself, the Attitude Era brought the WWF back to prominence, though not without controversy. The once family-friendly WWF was definitely not so any longer. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, the idea was pretty simple. Bring in Russo and Ferreira, and maybe they could help WCW find a new style like they helped the WWF find one. Would it work? Let's find out. It's the tradition. Starcade 99, the granddaddy of them all. The Revolution faces Hacksaw Jim Duggan and three mystery partners. Who will Duggan bring to Starcade? If Duggan wins it, the Revolution must take over the janitorial duties of WCW for 30 days. If the Revolution wins it, Duggan must denounce the United States. Sting takes on his former friend, the Total Packet. If Sting beats the Packet, Elizabeth's contract with the Packet is null and void. Creative Control and Kurt Hennig doing the bidding of the powers that be. Face Harlem Heat and Midnight. In a crowbar on a pole match, the maniacal David Flair faces off with Diamond Dallas Page looking for revenge on the youngster. For the WCW Hardcore title, screaming Norman Smiley with the monster Ming. In a bunkhouse brawl showdown, Jeff Jarrett and Dustin Rhodes, the son of the man that invented the matchup at Starcade. Johnny the Bull and Big Vito face off with Disco Inferno and Lash LaRue. Dr. Death Steve Williams with Oklahoma faces the Dark Angel Vampiro. If Vampiro wins it, he gets five minutes with Oklahoma at Starcade. WCW Cruiserweight Championship on the line. Evan Courageous defends against his former significant other, Medusa. Who is the master of the powerbomb? We will find out at Starcade when the Millennium Man, Sid Vicious, faces off with Kevin Nash to win the match. All you gotta do, use the powerbomb. And the World Heavyweight Championship is at stake. The former tag team champions do battle one-on-one. Brett, the Hitman Hart, defends against Goldberg. It all goes down at Starcade. <laughs> you know Powerbomb should be an energy drink. It should. Let's make it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, who will be the master, though? Because one of us has to be the master. Uh, courtesy Alkea. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's a Hawaiian drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's gotta, it's gotta have punch. I mean, yeah. I think there's some copyright issues there, <laughs> possibly. We open with a video package going over the night's matches, and boy, are there a lot of them. I can't say I'm happy about it. It basically just lists the eleven, potentially twelve, depending on how one turns out, matches currently scheduled for the night. It gives a bit of context to a couple, but largely just runs through the list. At the start, there's a weird bit of, I don't know, poetry that flashes on the screen. It reads, The time has come for seas to rise and mountains to fall. Is this the end or just the beginning? Come again? <laughs> yeah. 
It's like half Lovecraft, half Jim Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> I got to ask you guys, did the voiceover guy sound really weird? Mm. Well, I know I know who it is, so I was used to that voice. No, I, I don't mean in, in the actual voice. I mean oh. the, the cadence. Oh, yeah. It's like... How do I put it? It's like just about every sentence or wrestler name was a new take. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're they're like all being cut together. It just doesn't sound natural. It doesn't sound like he's actually saying most of those sentences straight through. Well, I don't think he breathed in between things. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. But it's like some of them, it feels like a new word is starting underneath the prior word almost. Like it's like they've merged separate clips together in this really unnatural style. I don't know if you guys were ke- were picking up on that either. No, I, I can hear that. I think the closest you could do that now is put all of this this into your phone and have Siri read it out, and that's kind of what it sounds. Yeah. Like. Well, the the weird robotic sniffing sound that they had in between each clip <laughs> kind of clips out some stuff. Yeah. The Starcade logo pops up to separate the match videos from each other, and it makes this weird, like, sound each time. But one time, it pops up twice in a row. Oh. I I have a theory about that, but I'll mention that later in the show. Okay. (laughs) There's a weird end to the video as a new WCW logo pops up. It just kind of sits there glaring at us for a bit while ominous noises play. The new logo this year was created apparently to be all cool and late 90s and futuristic. It looks pretty bad. It looks really bad. (laughs) It's this strange kind of star-shaped mess with a W to each side and an absolutely huge C in the middle of it. It's on the top of the Starcade logo as well, and it just kind of looks slapped haphazardly up there. It clashes with the rest of the design, I think. For sure, yeah. I mean, I thought they were going to do some sort of space wrestling. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It just, like, slowly floats onto the screen in this weird, like, ominous thing. It it reminded me kind of of the Dark Souls title screen Mm. that just kind of glares at you. (laughs) This entire show reminds me more of a video game than an actual show. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like like an NFL team or, like, you know, they they tried to... have some sporty yeah they're going for like sleek but it just comes off like awkward we go from that video package right into another video package this video package quite nicely sets up the nash versus vicious versus heart versus goldberg four-way powerbomb world title match nice or that's what it seems like anyway, since there's barely a second of separation between the segment covering Nash versus Vicious and the one covering Hart versus Goldberg. There's also a kind of strange repeated countdown motif that doesn't seem to have anything to do with what's being shown. Just numbers are popping up by four, three, two, one, and over and over. It might be a countdown to the Millennium thing. That's what I was thinking too, yeah. Is that it's it's probably them counting down to the new year slash new century slash new millennium, only one of which is actually happening. <laughs> I think they just had the same filter and put it in repeat. <laughs> yeah, it comes out on the entrance videos all night, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. does isn't it? Finally, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show, declaring it the last wrestling pay-per-view of the century. First, no, it isn't. And second, another show where WCW is not being consistent with what time period they're going to reference? Is this about the millennium or about the century, guys? <sighs> Glad they didn't bring in the lifetime to this one, at least. Him saying the last wrestling pay-per-view of a lifetime would be really foreboding. Oh no, what's <laughs> happened? 
It's that red dot I keep seeing. <laughs> Tony introduces the other announcers, Bobby the Brain Heenan and Scott, no nickname, Hudson. And we're right on to the first match. Let's go to the ring. So our first match is Disco Inferno and Lash LaRue versus the Marinara Goon Squad. <laughs> Big Vito and Johnny the Bull with Tony Marinara. Saucy. Yes, it's a very saucy match. <laughs> the referee for this match is Billy Silverman. Disco Inferno had been involved with the Mama Luce, who were technically recently brought in. Recurring theme throughout the show is that a bunch of people are all power plant call-ups, including Lash LaRue, the guy he's with. So a lot of people are coming in new this year and being thrown into these weird Russo stories. So he was aligned with them for a bit, but unfortunately their interference cost him the Cruiserweight title. So that sort of sour the voice up there. So then he ends up fighting against them, and Lash LaRue is generous enough to get between you know mobsters that want to murder you people and Disco Inferno, apparently. Okay. Really just friendly Cajun guy, I guess. That's about all there is to it other than them showing a video package of how they apparently douse them in marinara sauce because yes. subtlety is not going to happen in this show. No. Okay, so you're a stupid character named Tony Marinara. You just pour noodles on him. You don't need yeah. the sauce. That's yeah, that's true. kind of yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> It's stupid, but it could be slightly less stupid? I guess so. You get stabbed with breadsticks. Yeah, there you go. Breadstick nunchucks. Deliciously deadly. Mm -hmm. Disco comes out with a kind of strange outfit. A big floppy hat, leopard print vest, and what looks like more tiger print pants. True. He puts the hat on a little kid in the crowd, and it just about totally hides the kid's head. That was kind of adorable. <laughs> He does a disco dance in the ring, as one might expect. His partner, Lash LaRue, has a very shiny silver shirt. It doesn't make up for the loss of Sting's old sparkly jackets, but I appreciate the effort. <laughs> yeah, I'll see that. It's nice. During Vito and Johnny's entrance, there's a strange sign in the crowd that looks like a carefully laid out collection of various mathematical or arcane symbols. Was the formula for Alchemy's fabled Philosopher's Stone revealed on Starcade 1999? <laughs> Uh, listener Kevin let me know that several appear to possibly be Greek letters, but as to what it all means, I have no idea. It was a really bizarre sign. My best guess is it's the anti-life equation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but don't read it out loud. It will not end well. Vito and Johnny's entrance theme is about as Italian mafia as you can get without actually being the theme from The Godfather. They don't say bada bing, though, unfortunately. No, that's DDP's thing. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I immediately hated Tony Marinara for his incredibly punchable facial expressions. Oddly, he has a tiger print shirt on him that looks a lot like the pattern on Disco's pants. The announcers talk about Disco owing him money, so maybe the shirt is actually Disco's. Maybe, yeah. It does look a little too big for Marinara, too. So. True, yeah. The goons win a brawl. Vito and LaRue start off the match proper, and Vito dominates LaRue including a stalling suplex and lots of wavy martial artsy gestures before and after a big sidekick. Tagged to Johnny, and he and Vito both hit double axe handles. So, quadruple axe handles, I guess? Or 22 axe handles. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> LaRue gets a hip toss and drop kick and tags Disco. Disco does well and gets one counts off a clothesline and Russian leg sweep, 
but Johnny ducks a clothesline and sweeps Disco's legs from behind in a cool spot. Cheap shot by Vito puts Disco in trouble, and LaRue protests, allowing the heels to double-stomp Disco and switch off behind the ref's back. Vito and Johnny trade off wearing Disco down, and double-teaming him, earning several two-counts. Vito gets a massive one-handed slam, but takes forever doing poses before a second rope splash, so of course Disco dodges. Vito sells, oddly enough, like he hit his crotch, despite landing on his knees. Maybe he's that uh, creature from Star Trek VI that oh, yeah. has him in a different place. <laughs> <laughs> Makes as much sense than anything on the show. Can't believe I remember that scene. Okay. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Disco Commando rolls to tag LaRue. LaRue beats up both goons, but hits a weird sideways dropkick to Johnny that looked like it was just mistimed. Nice bit, as Disco and LaRue whip the goons into each other, but the goons no-sell and try clotheslines, only for the faces to duck and clothesline them down. Disco and Vito end up outside, and LaRue wins a brawl with Johnny by doing the splits and mostly missing a clothesline, as Johnny went down early and at the wrong angle. <laughs> wow. Johnny comes back with a military press, and Heenan jokes that they'll call LaRue Whiplash LaRue soon. <laughs> Johnny loses his footing doing a top rope leg drop, and Hudson nicely incorporates that slip up into the story by saying it gave LaRue time to dodge. LaRue does some weird amalgamation of a snapmare and a Russian leg sweep. Guess a snapshin legmare? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Disco hits a frog splash from up top and gets two, despite not being the legal man, as Vito breaks it up with a top rope elbow drop and rolls Johnny on top, but Disco gets the ropes. LaRue sends Vito into an attempted last dance, a stunner, by Disco, but Vito escapes and dodges a clothesline from LaRue. Disco accidentally hits LaRue with the last dance. Vito hits a swinging DDT on LaRue, and Johnny charges at Disco, and Vito gets the three count and the win. Johnny and LaRue were the legal men. <laughs> Marinera does an irritating dance outside and mocks Disco's dancing. Vito and Johnny beat up Disco, and Marinera comes in and takes a body bag out of his briefcase. As you do. Yes, as, as one does. <laughs> if one's a mobster, anyway, I guess. Marinera tweaks Disco's nose and pours chloroform or something in his mouth, which nearly instantly knocks Disco out. Pretty sure that's not quite how that works. Critical success. Yeah. They quite efficiently get Disco into the body bag, and Johnny carries him out in terrifying fashion, as poor Disco nearly slips from his grip multiple times. Vito kind of puts one hand on the bag, but doesn't really bother to actually help. Yeah, it's weird that the two of them, and they're just like, just not gonna guy's just like, oh, I'm gonna lightly touch it. That's helping, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They get Disco through the curtain to backstage, and Johnny immediately, and none too softly, drops him, <laughs> and they unzip the body bag. Disco is now kind of conscious again, because that's how that works. Well, the fall clearly shook him away. I guess so. Vito drags him to the back of a car, and they stuff him in the trunk and drive off. Hilariously, Marinera accidentally has it in reverse at first. <laughs> the Disco Inferno was 25, Heenan says. 32, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I'm kind of be nicer to this than I originally planned on being. So I think the thing with this match is... It shows a lot of potential in the people involved, mm -hmm. because three of the four people actually in the in the match itself are fairly recent call-ups from the power plant. I don't know how much experience they had before being called up, but say they have a, you know, a year, maybe a year of wrestling, it's kind of like the Triple H um, 
Alex Wright. Thank you, Alex Wright match, where you realize, oh, they're both, both been wrestling for like two years. Yeah. So when you miscue, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's the kind of understandable. Lex Luger making the same miscue, you're like, oh, what's the matter with you? Yeah. You're doing this way longer. But yeah, there's definitely some interesting moments where you could see what they could do. Lashabru, I've never really been a fan of his, but he has, he's one of those guys that's solid, just I never really connected him as a character. Johnny mm-hmm. the Bull's a little better because he has a couple of big power moves he can do. He unfortunately is in that same mindset a bunch of people are at this point where there's a move they can do. If they do it right, it looks really cool, but they only do it like 40% of the time. <laughs> See, Sabu. <laughs> yeah. The unique but silly finish kind of works because it's, it's, it is a tag team match, so at least the sort of playing the odds and playing working together kind of makes sense. It's a little silly that he never bothers to look back at who he's hitting for his finisher. Yeah. Though it is Disco Inferno, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What I really expect him, out of him at this point. <laughs> the aftermath with the body bag and all that is just weird. Because I don't know why he's in a body bag to then take an out of a body bag a minute later and put it in a trunk. That seems very inefficient. Extremely, yes. And like when, he, when they open the trunk, then he's free and can actually fight them. Oh, yeah. Or if you kept it in the dang, dang body bag, it protects you from him when you're opening the trunk again. Right, right. Yeah. It's, it's Mafia 101, guys. Maybe the chloroform was just, I don't know, expired. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not as good as last year's opener. No. By a mile. I do like a energetic and unique opening match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But somehow... <laughs> I think everyone was like so busy wanting to play up their stereotype, they forgot mm-hmm. to wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of botched shots, and that's okay, but they were quick about it. There was a little bit of uh, showboating after each move by the heels. It was it was good to a certain degree. Yeah, I, you know. <laughs> a lot of kick punches all in the mind. Yes. You put some of those filters in the beginning, and I'm like, oh, it's a rave. But, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was not a good formula uh, for me to enjoy the match. The fact that the lead-in and the exit take up about the same amount of time. I know it doesn't take up the same amount of time of the match, but it felt that way. Yeah, for sure. I don't remember seeing anything else come of this from the pseudo-Marinara Mafia in the rest of the show. The amount of time that was put in, if there was something else in in the show, which I could have forgotten... It would make more sense. No, they're not. <laughs> I like that they didn't blur the, the license tag at the end. So if, if we could go back and find out if someone called in something for VTX 1016, <laughs> that would be an interesting point. Overall, I was not impressed. And in this sort of kind of set my tone for the first few matches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought this was pretty decent myself. They had a fast pace. If very sloppy at times. Yeah. Like Marinara. Yeah. The goons in particular had some cool spots individually and some nice double team moves. But Johnny the Bull just couldn't quite manage all of his spots properly. There were little flubs here and there that just added up over the course of the match and made it harder than it should have been to stay involved in the match's story. Vito seemed a little more reliable, but it's like every other move he's gesticulating wildly into the air to taunt. 
Still, good heel work by the goons overall, and Disco and LaRue did just fine balancing selling for the goons with fighting just enough to make it look like they still had a chance. A basic match structure, raised up by some creative spots and lowered down by some notable botches and confusion as to who was the legal man. Still, for me, this was a pretty fun start to the Starcade. But I, I will definitely agree <laughs> that the storyline bits after the match are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's like, does no one want to help Disco, or at least... I know, that's always a thing on wrestling shows. It's like, okay, someone is apparently going to be murdered. At this point, <laughs> <laughs> someone should probably run out there and help him. Yeah, where at very least is the head of security for this company. Yeah, come on, Dillinger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did chuckle at the being in reverse first. That was great. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, he nearly took out the cameraman. <laughs> I, I guess he figured his guys both botched things during the match, so he might as well botch something during the uh, during the exit. <laughs> I'm kind of between you two on, on my feelings on this, so I feel like if you see more with the people involved, except for me, Disco, I think he's kind of peaked for what he can do. I think might be able to press more in other matches. You've experienced up to now. I, I definitely see what you're saying. On you can see the potential of the people involved. Yeah. That with more seasoning, I feel like these guys can can make it. So you need some oregano. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little ba- touch of basil. Yeah. I mean, the energy was there. I just thought that it could have been executed a little bit better. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. absolutely. 100%, yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm with you. <laughs> This storyline does go a little bit further. They play up Disco owing money to the mob boss, who's the dad of Tony Marinera, who, as far as I can tell, is just an actor, because he's not a wrestler I recognized. Uh, but it all comes to a head with Tony Marinera, anyways, at Sold Out, where he appears in a backstage promo interviewed by Mijin Okerlund, who says he has to, quote, go take care of some business, and is never seen again. Because he signed with ECW and became Tony Mama Luke. It's not a uh, okay. better name, but he's generally a much more regarded, regarded wrestler. <laughs> he become part of the full-blood Italians or the FBI in ECW, which, weirdly enough, would eventually be reformed in WE to include Dying the Bull. Okay. So it all loops around eventually. All, all reunion. Reunions. All the familia. Yeah. Exactly. Weirdly, Disco's association with the group, the Mama Lukes in general... It's actually not over after they, you know, took him away to be tortured and or murdered, so. that That's strange. He's with them for quite a while after this. I guess they got over it. They made him an offer he couldn't refuse, I guess. Yeah. Good old-fashioned Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> there's one big misunderstanding with this match, though. So there's long sections, like in the early part, in the middle, where the Mamelukes are beating up, controlling... Disco Inferno. Mm-hmm. Not once do any of them yell, Disco is dead. Yeah, that's Not true. Not once. That's true. I'm very disappointed in them. We go to the announcers, and Tony brushes off Disco Inferno's likely coming demise to talk about the Hart versus Goldberg no disqualification match for the world title. <laughs> There's a fun fan sign in the uh, crowd. WCW, drink till it looks real. Mm. Ouch. <laughs> Fitting after the last match we had, actually. <laughs> yeah. For John. <laughs> Hudson says almost exactly the same thing that Tony just said, and then says the match will determine who is the king of the WCW belt. 
what? <laughs> yeah, I, I, but... Tony turns to Heenan and asks about the Nash versus Vicious powerbomb match, and Heenan builds up how big both guys are and how Vicious never gives up and always moves forward. Tony says their, quote, third main event... <sighs> Chris Benoit versus Scott Hall for Hall's U.S. title can't happen because Hall has a knee injury. Tony says that WCW's championship committee has declared that because of that, Hall has forfeited his title to Benoit, so Benoit is now champion. Benoit's music suddenly hits, and Tony questioningly studies his papers, then throws to the ring to find out why Benoit is coming out despite not having a match. Still on the format sheet. Chris Benoit comes out dressed in street clothes and carrying the United States title. Benoit's music is a horrible mess of bass guitar and random other notes with no actual melody. He takes a microphone. Earlier today, WCW's executive committee stated that because Scott Hall is unable to wrestle tonight, not only does he forfeit the ladder match, but along with it, forfeits the U.S. heavyweight title, which in turn makes me the new U.S. heavyweight champion. Sounds like a popular decision. You know, in my opinion, titles aren't to be given. They're to be won. The Crippler's got a motto. Sweat more in peacetime bleed less during war. I came to D.C. tonight to kick some ass. You all came here tonight to see a ladder match for the U.S. heavyweight title. In my opinion, this title is vacant. But what I'm going to do is issue an open challenge to anyone sitting in the locker room that wants to fight for the pride, the prestige, and the notoriety of being the U.S. heavyweight champion. But if you want to get to the top of the WCW tonight, you're going to have to climb over the crippler. I thought this was a pretty good promo by Benoit, actually. That's somewhat unusual. He came off as a brave fighter that wanted to earn his championship reign. He kept it simple and turned a moment that could have been very disappointing for the crowd into a focus for anticipation for later in the show. Mm -hmm. So, well done on that. Yep. I think this is the point that explains that double Starcade logo from the opening video package. I imagine what happened there is that they cut a bit out about Benoit versus Hall. So, we got the transitions to and from that bit right next to each other. Any thoughts on the promo? Compared to the last we got, this is amazing. <laughs> it's way better than, quote, the Crippler no more. <laughs> yes. They stopped giving him poetry, which is definitely a good idea. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was good. Like you said, it kind of gives some anticipation for later on and mm-hmm. kind of gives a free-form feel that they're going to give him a show. Mm-hmm. And I think if if WCW had chosen that for... Uh, a lot of the previous Starcades, we wouldn't be seeing the, the turnout that we are. Yeah, most likely. <laughs> we can anticipate all the great matches, possible matches they might get, like 
Chris Benoit versus Brian Knobs in a ladder match. I mean, oh my gosh, man! <laughs> don't don't ruin it. But no, I see. Like, I mean, on '97, mm-hmm. if we'd done something like this when Nash didn't show, yeah, then you might have gotten some kind of satisfactory match for the Giant or for Scott Hall or something at that show. Yeah. Uh, instead, they were just like, "Oh, you're not getting the match." On this one, they're like, "No, we're still going to give you a match." <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is a good thing. So, Starcade '99 plus one point. <laughs> yeah, I give them two. Gotta get those points while they can. Before Benoit even leaves the ring, Medusa's music starts up, and the text flies on the screen to let us know that this is the Cruiserweight title match. I think that weird sound that happens in the middle of Benoit's promo might be that um, logo starting up really quick before someone realizes Mm. it stops it. So our second match is Medusa versus Evan Courageous with Spice for Courageous's Cruiserweight title. The referee for this match is Mickey J. So, as mentioned in the previous match setup, Disco Inferno loses Cruiserweight title due to shenanigans involving Mamelukes. He loses it to Evan Courageous, whose name is spelled as stupidly as you would guess. Are are you just refusing to call them the Marinara Goon Squad? Yes. Okay, I figured. Yes, I am. (laughs) Just just making sure. (laughs) Correct. He wins the title, and the story they have going is that Medusa, who, to remind you, they brought in another company because she wanted to wrestle a woman competitively for a title is now his manager mm-hmm. slash love interest. Sure, she's really glad she made the jump now. Yeah. Really not regretting a thing she did. Unfortunately for their relationship, he starts hitting on a natural girl named Spice. As such, Medusa gets mad and challenges him title match, which he accepts. Medusa has a sparkly blue outfit with stars tonight and hair that oddly looks like Chris Jericho's hair from last year. Same hairstyle, just about. Yeah. Was that blue? That wasn't blue, but the, like, same uh, shape. Oh. (laughs) Courageous, fighting his ex-girlfriend, comes out holding hands with current girlfriend Spice. Slightly awkward. The entrance themes tonight are just beats and bass and rhythm. No actual melody. It's starting to get on my nerves at this point. Well, I mean, you gotta pay singers if they sing songs, so (laughs) we're not doing that. We can't afford that. Courageous's is particularly harsh and annoying. Oh, yeah. Medusa dives on Courageous before he enters, and they fight outside. Courageous throws Medusa to the steps for exactly zero Cena, as they don't even move. (laughs) Back and forth, and they go in, where she challenges him to punch her, but he hesitates. She slaps him, so he punches her and she goes down. Courageous clothesline and whips, but they mistime a power slam. Courageous tries a beautiful top-rope moonsault that would have missed by a mile even if Medusa hadn't dodged. Good form, work on the distance. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it looked good. It looks really good. He just, like, clears half the ring, and she's, like, lying in the first quarter of it. (laughs) It rolled, like, through the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just want to make sure I wasn't in the the way. Yeah, the common thing with Kratos, he'll he'll do moves that look really good, but he'll he'll go too far or too short. Mm -hmm. I've seen a bunch of matches if he does that. He's overconfident in his abilities to to get exact positioning. Yeah. Medusa hits a Muta-esque spin kick and drop kick, but Courageous gets a powerbomb for two. Medusa bridges up, turns him over, and looks to be going for a pile driver, but can't get her grip right, and nearly drops Courageous right on his head. 
Mm-hmm. Luckily, she muscles him up a bit so that he lands on his shoulders in a very awkward powerbomb instead. That was scary. <laughs> Even he didn't sound shaken up afterwards. Yeah. Medusa oddly just rolls Courageous over and he stands. Yes, she might have wanted to make sure he could. <laughs> Gosh. She charges, but he throws her onto the apron and hits a rope-assisted stunner. Medusa to the floor, and Courageous dives out on top of her, but as he rolls her in the ring, she points at the ring. Spice suddenly climbs up on the apron and makes out with Courageous, and Medusa slaps Courageous, and Spice hits the gentlest punch to the balls you will ever see, as Courageous does not even recognize it happened to sell. (laughs) Medusa hits a nice bridging German suplex for the three count and the win, winning the cruiserweight title. Courageous just leaves, and Medusa and Spice exit together. I mean, he's very accepting what happens. Like, yep, well, yeah. gotta go now. I didn't think it was a punch. I thought it was a pinch. <laughs> yeah, it's like, just like, <laughs> it's supposed to be like a straight shot. I mean, I think it's what he's going for, but yeah, well, that's, that's okay. I mean, I, I, I imagine he's grateful that it didn't hit hard, but it's still like he clearly doesn't recognize that the move has even occurred because you don't know sell a ball shot. No, <laughs> but he knows sells a ball shot. <laughs> Maybe you could argue that the fact that she hit him there and it didn't seem to bother him is maybe why Spice is breaking up with him. <laughs> I mean... Maybe. Okay. Mm. Anyway, thoughts on this match? Oh, <laughs> of all that. Sloppy, awkward stuff. It's a pretty accurate summary <laughs> of the whole match, really. <laughs> yeah. Medusa does do her during suplex, so I'll give her that. <laughs> And she has a couple of spots that go well. Obviously, one that absolutely did not go well. Yes. That spot she's going for felt like a Sable move. Sable would do the Sable bomb. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't think of you as doing power bombs. I'm sure she has done them. But that's not the way I think of when I think of yeah. her. And it's weird that she's so committed to this spot and obviously should not have been given how it ended up. That's where I'm almost sure what she's actually trying to do as a pile driver. And he just starts to slip. And she and he together managed to turn it into a powerbomb mm. to save him. Because when you look, she actually like grabs him by the belt to start pulling up, uh-huh. or, the, or the tights to start pulling up, which is something you do with a pile driver more often. But right. It's not something you do with a powerbomb. Usually. But when yeah, yeah. he starts to kind of slip, she changes her grip, and it turns into the powerbomb-looking thing. I mean, yeah, no one's heard from it, so it's yeah. really majorly, so I'm glad they did what they did, but it's just, yeah, that spot feels weird, because it's all built around doing a move that I don't think of her doing. Right, yeah. My last note was, the worst-looking low blow ever. Yes. <laughs> yep. And mind you, this is a show with at least 42 of them. <laughs> yes. I did like that Medusa wrestled without shoes. I, I thought it was a unique part of her wrestling kit. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about the oh, he kicked him with the heel or, or something <laughs> like that. That's a good point. Yeah, he probably insisted. I, honestly, I was more intrigued about with Spice than the rest of the match. I was like, to go back a little bit of a personal thing. When I was online, my my call sign was Virtue, and Bobby was like, what, "Virtue of what?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the whole time, I'm like, "What Spice is this?" You know, and <laughs> and I I don't know. The saving grace for this whole match was it was short. Yes, <laughs> true. I mean, there were some missed spots and everything, but at the end of the day, it still had a cohesive narrative that there's some betrayal, and then that's it. Done. And then (laughs) Spice becomes a good promoter, and then they will go away, and you don't hear anything else. Yeah. 
I think the spelling of his name kind of just pushed me against him in the beginning. <laughs> it does that. It does that. Yeah, what a mess. These two had no chemistry in the ring, and their timing seemed off for the entire match. Most of the moves looked clumsy in some way or another, and that pile driver slash powerbomb was horrifically frightening. That could easily have left Courageous paralyzed or dead. Very badly performed ending spot, too, except for Medusa's still good bridging German suplex. It just kind of fell apart from the opening moments, and it just never recovered. Just mm. a bad match. It's a shame to go from either of the Cruiserweight title matches we got last year's oh show. Oh my gosh, yes. Even just a direct comparison, last year's show was a reminder we got Eddie Guerrero versus Billy Kidman mm-hmm. as second match for the Cruiserweight title. So yeah, it did not hold up compared to that. Yeah, you look at last year's Cruiserweight stuff, and th- there's no comparison. Absolutely no comparison. None. I like that they gave the Cruiserweight to a, a woman, which I think is the first, right? For the company? I believe they say it's actually the first for WCW overall for a woman holding a not-specific women's title. I don't know if that's accurate. I mean, as WCW, they tend to say whatever, but it sounds probably pretty feasible. I will say it's weird that Medusa never gets to hold the WCW Women's Championship. That's true. But she gets to hold this title. I guess she gets a title. Yeah. Yeah. Evan <laughs> uh, Kratos will quickly rebound from this. In fact, I looked at it about a week later to form the trio known as Three Count. Yes! With Shannon Moore, Evan Courageous, and Sugar Shane Helms. Yes! Uh, One of the few things that I love from WCW 2000. Basically, they're three young male wrestlers they hired, and they're all cruiserweights, but they have them act like a boy band and sing a song about how they're better than other boy bands. That sounds awesome. (laughs) It is absolutely glorious. Yeah. (laughs) To remind you, we are deep in the NSYNC Backstreet Boys time period of music, so this is why they're doing this. Mm-hmm. As for Medusa, she has a title defense on Nitro about a week from now against Asia. So we have two women competing for the Cruiser title. It was interesting. Yeah, that's, that's nice, actually. Yeah. Less nice is who she's up against later, but I'll get to that when it comes up. We go backstage, where Mean Gene Okerlund is with Norman Smiley who is carrying his hardcore championship and dressed in full football gear. Norman Smiley, in just a few moments, right here tonight at Starcade, you are going to be defending the WCW hardcore title. Now, at the risk of sounding negative, I get the impression that you are afraid of me. You're frightened. Afraid? Frightened? I wouldn't say frightened. Cautious? Yes. Weary? Absolutely. But I'm not scared, and I'm going to let... Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Norman. That's just the producer trying to count you out of the interview. You gotta settle down. He shouldn't make any sudden moves like that. I'm a coral spring waiting to explode. And tonight, Ming's gonna find that out. Are we off yet? Of course we're off. Hey, Mr. Producer, uh, yeah, I'm talking to you. Don't make any more sudden moves like that. I almost saw my pants. Am I okay back to you? Oh, you did. Really? Why? <sighs> Why? Uh, the screaming Norman Smiley gimmick is here. Did they really have to give a guy who could put on the kind of submission hold clinic we saw last year the gimmick of frequently being so scared he might wet himself? The promo's fine otherwise, I guess. Decent, insincere bravery on Smiley's part. He he performs this well. I just wish he wasn't performing this. It feels beneath him. 
It's a good horror movie scream, but yeah, yeah, he does it's a fair good. Weird scream. from coming from him as his character, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's back there for that. I don't know why. I, I don't know why they turned turned him into that. It, yeah, I saw the look of pain on your face while I was playing the promo. I honestly, if I had pay per view, I don't know if I would turn it off. I'd be like, "Is this what this is going to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is yeah. this what this show is going to be?" Yep, I understand. Yeah, this is. I didn't mind this so much before I knew how good he was. Yeah. I do have to raise an obvious issue with the plot of this show so far with regards to him. Mm-hmm. So, between match one and two, we get the promo explaining that Scott Hall is injured and thus has vacated his U.S. title. Norris Smiley does not want to wrestle in hardcore matches. Why didn't you just tell them he's injured and vacate the title? The WCW would never believe that you were, that you were injured if you weren't. Come on. Oh, that's true, I guess. (laughs) There's one thing you can say for WCW officials and referees and people in general. They are not gullible, man. Yeah. (laughs) They've restored your faith since Nick Patrick sadly betrayed our trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For all those years, we trusted him. Yeah, yeah. Well, our third match is Meng versus Norman Smiley for Smiley's WCW Hardcore title. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick, with Nick Patrick's mustache. Very nice. (laughs) Due to the popularity of ECW, we now have a hardcore title of WCW. Probably perhaps helped by stuff coming in WWF as well with Crash Holly. Mm -hmm. In the finals, Norman Smiley, the reluctant hardcore wrestler, who from an entertainment that's all hardcore... Again, I don't know why. (laughs) No one ever accused him of being smart. It's true, I guess. Becomes the champion. He now has to face the master of somewhere between seven and nine martial arts to keep it. Meng. Meng has a sparkly gold robe and pants. Everyone's trying to make up for the lack of sting jackets, I guess. Thanks, guys. Norman is out to yet more generic rock. He rolls a dumpster full of strange weapons, including a surge barrel, to the ringside area and puts on his football helmet. Smiley hurls objects at Meng, and Meng uses those objects to block other objects. Smiley flees, and Meng runs the dumpster into him, and Smiley loses his helmet. He might want to get a refund on that. Meng uses a garbage can on Smiley, and Smiley screams and runs backstage, then ambushes Meng. Meng no-sells and beats up Smiley, and Smiley screams and flees. Rinse and repeat as they go through and wreck a dining area. Meng slams Smiley through a table. Smiley grabs and sprays a fire extinguisher at everything but Meng, then hides in the dining area debris. Fit Finley and Brian Nobbs show up and try various objects against Meng. Meng destroys the two, even sending Nobbs through deadly cardboard boxes of napkins. <laughs> Meng ignores everything they use, including Nobbs' ultimate weapon, the dreaded cardboard Starcade sign. <laughs> but Finley finally knocks him out with a lead pipe. Finley and Nobbs leave, and Smiley crawls out of the wreckage, kicks Meng to make sure he's out, and puts a hand on him for the very fast three-count by Nick Patrick. So he can do a fast count. Yeah. <laughs> He'd been saving his energy for all these years. There you go. Patrick checks on Meng, and Meng wakes up and applies the Tongan death grip to him as we fade out. And so does he. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Punching. Running. Hilarity? I like how you put a question mark on hilarity. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely did. <laughs> it deserves the question mark. Yes. Hilarity? Uh-huh. So I started watching wrestling around the time this became a thing. 
So I was used to Crash Holly, where you know you'd fight people in the airport and like you know, the ball pit and all this stuff in the park. And I'm like, okay, this is not good, but at least it's amusing. Mm-hmm. They would play about comedic this is, and it kind of works as a sort of diversion, which is what they were trying fairly recently with the WB 24-7 thing. They kind of just gave up on that for the most part. You know, people would be attacked at weddings and, you know, on a plane and stuff like that. But now it's just like, oh, yeah, we don't care. Which is what generally happened with hardcore divisions. Yeah. They gave, them, they gave it six months to a year, and they just kind of stopped worrying about it. Yeah. I did like, to a certain extent, how overbooked the finish was purely designed to keep Ming super strong, because he obviously can easily overcome Smiley, who apparently forgot all of his holds in terror, yes. I guess. and Brian Nobbs and Finley until they, blow. I assume, is the lead pipe left over by a retired Arn Anderson. <laughs> Honestly, I know we're not doing MVPs per, we do per show, not per match, but if we're doing MVPs per match... My MVP is actually, of this match, anyways, is actually Dick Patrick for his hilarious cartoon salad being choked. Yes, that that w- that was the one moment that was actually funny in this. Yes, <laughs> mm-hmm. he knows what it's supposed to be. Where everyone else is like trash can lid, trash can lid. Yeah. Again, more <laughs> like a video game than a show. Mm-hmm. It is totally slapstick. It's like it's like an SNL skit or like this Three Stooges reenactment. It's. I would not be like surprised if a giant mallet showed up, giant boxing gloves, or you know, a gun that, that with a little thing that shot out and said "bang." It would not <laughs> have surprised me in the least. Mm-hmm. It's a nice distraction, but <laughs> come on, you could use Smiley better than that. Mm-hmm. I- I'm glad it ended the way it did because then they can continue the joke and kind of get feedback and see if that's something they want to see again. But I think they could have gone. A little bit crazier than the little... We had a cafeteria set up from our, our lunch earlier. They could have done something stupider. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about that. So we had Norm Smiley backstage just talking to, to Gene Orkeland. He immediately goes right to the ring because he's being called off the promo during the promo. And then they fight to the back within a minute or two. They really should have had Mean Gene actually still back there and be surprised when they ran past him again. Yeah. Like, said, how, like, what are you doing back here? Oh, no! You're something. <laughs> something to realize how silly this is. one nine hundred nine zero nine ninety nine. 909 99 Yeah, yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, my favorite part is when, other than the choking, um, is when Smiley just randomly, instead of just running through the opening that they have, he just runs and jumps into the curtains. Yes. <laughs> partition and rolls himself up. <laughs> just, like, disappears amongst the wreckage. Yeah, yeah. for no reason. <laughs> and I think that's cue for the, the other people coming. Yeah, but yeah. Come on. You should have done a cart- the cartoon thing and tried to jump behind a tree and see if he like, vanishes once he gets behind <laughs> yes. it. Yeah. Might as well go full full bore with it if you're going to yeah, do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bunch of brawling. Meng did look awesome just hurling stuff around backstage, to be sure, but there's no sense of drama to the match. It's just, and I use the word loosely, comedy. This could be something I enjoyed if Smiley's character was such that I thought he could win if he tired the big guy out. But Smiley's not a scrappy underdog. He's a coward who doesn't have any strategy beyond hit men with object. Yeah. Finley and Nobbs just take over for Smiley in the exact same storyline with less screaming, and then we get a deeply unsatisfying end. They took a good wrestler who could perform intricate wrestling matches and turned him into a screaming idiot who never does anything more complex than swinging a trash can. Last year, Smiley's hold got Heenan joking about Thanksgiving. This year, 
Smiley's the turkey. <laughs> yeah, I tasted. I do not approve at all. <laughs> well, maybe he wanted to be cardboard champion. <laughs> silly, but not silly enough. Yeah. Does not require further thought. No. True. Smiley would drop the title to Brian Nobbs and you guessed it, January. <laughs> As a bonus, it happened on Thunder, not Nitro. Okay. Or pay-per-view. That's about the level of importance that this deserves. That was actually my note. This title change is not important enough for Nitro. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Meanwhile, backstage, a delivery guy knocks on a door, bearing a sign with Commissioner crossed out and D. Flair written in. David Flair whips the door open and screams, What do you want? Before ripping the package out of the delivery guy's hands. He opens it up and finds a gold crowbar. He goes back inside, giggling, as Heenan notes that he didn't tip. <laughs> At least he's showing some emotion, I guess. We go to the locker room, where... <sighs> Oklahoma is talking with Dr. Death, Steve Williams. It's been a long time since we've seen Dr. Death. I think it's Starcade 92? Yes, yeah. that is correct. correct. Oklahoma is Ed Ferreira doing a terrible and often offensive Jim Ross parody, which has included making fun of J.R.'s Bell's palsy. Oklahoma says he'll be out there with his microphone turned on so he can call the match, and Dr. Death shouts, Boomer Sooner! So Oklahoma joins in. Oklahoma walks out of the room, and we cut back to the announcers. Tony sarcastically says, Oh, it's good news that Oklahoma will be joining them for commentary, and Hudson, much less sarcastically, says, That's terrific! <laughs> Tony cuts him off to throw to the back again, where we see that Oklahoma has been kidnapped by punk rock band The Misfits, who are allied with Dr. Death's opponent, Vampiro. Hudson notes that if Vampiro beats Dr. Death later, Vampiro gets five minutes with Oklahoma. It's been a while since we saw that stipulation. I think it might have been back at 85? I want to say 85, yeah. Good gosh. We go back to the announcers, and uh, fans behind the announce table flip the bird at the camera. I'm going to take that as their opinion of Oklahoma. <laughs> He's just okay. <laughs> He's number two. Tony brings up the upcoming Duggan with Mystery Partners versus Revolution match and says the Revolution consider themselves a sovereign nation. He throws to a video package covering the feud. During that, we get our first shot of the powers that be. That's Vince Russo in a bare office set with very bad acoustics, filmed so only his right hand shows up, a la Dr. Claw from yes. Inspector Gadget. He is controlling the company or something. It's less clear than Eric Bischoff's role, which was already not always that clear. We cut back to Mike Tenay, who is with Duggan and his 2x4. Tenay says they don't know who his mystery partners are, and Duggan says that's why it's called a mystery. His partners are all true blue Americans, though. What about red and white? Nope. Duggan has to go now to defend our country. <laughs> Duggan does have a lot of character, but this was largely an unnecessary super quick promo. I feel like I'm just repeating things from last year, but we really didn't need both this and the video package, did we? No. Just pick one. If everyone they interviewed didn't look like they came out of some sort of uh, drug-induced fever dream, it would be good. <laughs> yeah, you give them like 30 seconds. Like... Cut a promo that makes any sense. It's like, boom, sir. Yeah, like, what are we going to say in 30 seconds to tell the story? I don't know. Yeah. So our fourth match 
is The Revolution, that's Shane Douglas, Perry Saturn, Dean Malenko, and Asia, versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan and three mystery partners. The referee for this is Johnny Boone. Shane Douglas, right out of ECW, like a lot of people you'll see over the course of 99 and 2000, forms a group of misfits not called the flock. They declare themselves to be separate from America, which angers wrestler-turned-janitor-turned-wrestler again, Jim Duggan. He agrees to do bad things if he loses. They agree to, to do his job if they lose. There's a Family Guy plot where their house is not in the map, and they oh, are outside of the U.S. I was like, did they rip off Family Guy? Pretoria was the name of his... Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah that's it. I looked it up because I was curious. I don't know the exact year of Family Guy episodes. That was July 2000, so... No, they didn't. They just both had oh, the same... It was idea. inspired by the revolution. I really doubt that. <laughs> yeah, so Duggan has to, like, denounce the United States and... Years ago, denounce the U.S. if he loses, and they agree to, <laughs> to be janitors. Okay. Asia is called Asia as WCW's way of saying that she is greater than the WWF's China. Uh, it's get it? so petty. <laughs> The revolution comes out in blue and red lighting that stays while Shane Douglas grabs a microphone. He tells the crowd to shut up and watch them kick Duggan's butt. Dean Malenko, bathed in blue light, looks like the Terminator. (laughs) Duggan's entrance theme is John Philip Sousa's The Washington Post March, written in 1889 for the award ceremony of an essay contest held by the famous newspaper. It actually has a gosh-darn melody, temporarily making Duggan the biggest face on the show for me. Sorry, Al. (laughs) (laughs) It won't last. The Washington Post is a great march, but it's always been a little funny to me that Duggan used that rather than Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, considering that he so often came out with the flag. Yeah, it's true. Not a fan of Duggan's attire. <laughs> no, no, no. He's basically WCW's janitor at the moment is why. Like I said, he, yeah, he's the wrestler turned janitor turned wrestler again. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, but it's stupid. Yes. Extremely, yes. Yeah. Shane Douglas goes over to join the commentary team. Duggan waves the U.S. flag around and signals to cut the music, turning him heel with me. He leads the crowd in a USA chant and introduces his mystery partners. The Varsity Club, Mike Rotunda, Rick Steiner, and Kevin Sullivan. They're led to the ring by a cheerleader. I'll admit that it was hilariously awesome to see Rotunda, Sullivan, and Steiner back in their old Varsity Club college letter jackets. Yeah. (laughs) Sullivan goes after the revolution. Duggan signals to the Varsity Club that he'll start the match. Malenko and Duggan start. Duggan beats up Malenko, and Saturn just kind of trades places with Malenko, which is apparently fine. So Duggan beats up Saturn. The Varsity Club bounces Saturn around with punches as Duggan can't find a point to jump in in a funny spot. Duggan single-handedly beats up Malenko and Saturn some more, and Douglas points out that Duggan isn't tagging his partners. Duggan three-point stands clothesline into a knee drop for one as he breaks to fight an approaching Saturn. Malenko finally gets control with a dropkick to Duggan's knee and tags Saturn, and Saturn and Malenko double-team Duggan when Boone has to go stop Sullivan from getting in. Saturn blessedly hits a springboard rebounding dropkick for two and tries a top-rope moonsault that Duggan dodges to add a few interesting moves to this match. Malenko hits Duggan with the Revolution's flag while Asia distracts the ref, but Asia keeps the distraction up for too long, and it only gets two. 
Duggan finally tries for a tag, but Saturn cuts him off and all three members of Revolution hit corner clotheslines in turn. Saturn's is oddly light. The triple teaming brings in the Varsity Club, who dispose of the Revolution, but suddenly turn on Duggan and beat him up, holding off the Revolution at the same time. Sullivan punts Duggan in the nuts, while Boone is distracted by Asia, and the Varsity Club goes to fight Malenko and Saturn. I see an opening and I think I'll take it, Douglas says, leaving the announce table to go pin Duggan for the three count and the win, because tag rules mean nothing anymore. I mean, come on, I get that heels cheat with tags all the time, but Boone surely has to know that the guy who was sitting at the announce table for the whole match is probably not the legal man. Who knows, maybe he he climbed the ring and yelled slap as he went by. (laughs) He did not. (laughs) Don't even try to excuse it. I wasn't really. Ugh. Malenko waves the revolution's flag. Their symbol looks uncannily like a blue version of the Tim Drake Robin logo. <laughs> was that serious? Was I yeah, the only yeah. one that saw that, or did, did did it look like that to you guys? <laughs> it is. I was gripped, and I would use this suably similar. <laughs> yeah. Good point. I didn't notice that, but well spotted. Douglas grabs a mic and says that Duggan has 24 more hours to wrap himself in the flag, and then on Nitro, he'll have to denounce the USA and denounce, I think he means renounce, his citizenship. Malenko drapes Duggan in the revolution's flag. Thoughts on this one? Duggan does all the face work. (laughs) I don't do mean to this poor guy, because I'm sure he he went through a lot of his life uh, before and after this. I'm sure he's a nice person. I've been near him at a indie show once, but that's the extent of ever meeting him. But that said, he's not really good. And he wasn't really good in the mid-80s, and this is 1999. Mm-hmm. So I will say that for the storyline, it has to make sense that he acts that way. He's constantly staying in the ring and not tagging out. But it basically puts all of the work on the shoulders of people like Malenko and uh, Saturn, which... They can certainly handle that. They can do enough of their own stuff. I think as short as this is, it kind of works up until the turn. It just gets fuzzy, a little screwy when the Varsity Club attacks Duggan, but also still attacks Revolution. Yeah, they just fight everybody, basically. Yeah, I guess so. That was confusing. Yeah. It is a group that features Kevin Sullivan, who is insane. So I guess that it still kind of makes sense. <laughs> Even aside from the fact this is a Russo show and swerves are as common as refs missing tags or and or ignoring the need to tag, <laughs> it was still a pretty obvious swerve, at least to me. No one there is going to do a long face run in this group, so... Yeah. yeah. Your trusted true blue American is Kevin Sullivan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he used to paint you know, the Nessie symbol on his face. I mean, not the guy I would trust. Yeah. Why? Um. <laughs> John, John is praying, everyone. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the best of matches, but I, I did, you know, it was nice to see Hacksaw out there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I still don't know why the Varsity Club just turned on him. It makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. I thought it was one of those things, oh, they're joining the revolution. You know, I was trying to put some sort of narrative in place, but I had nothing to go off of other than at the end of the day, they just wanted to make themselves out to be real big heels. And it's like, you will have to renounce your citizenship, you know, and then they're just gathering as many boos as they possibly can towards the yeah. end of the match. And I thought that was, that was the goal, goal, goal accomplished. <laughs> 
And I kind of thought that their flag would have been better if it was just a bunch of stars and then just a little square of stripes. <laughs> <laughs> like, like an inverse. Do the inverted U.S. flag, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's way more thought than they put into most things in this show. Yes, yeah. Or just a thing. different color palette. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I... I'm torn on this one because there's enough character work to kind of carry it, and the crowd is certainly hot for it, nearly constantly doing Duggan's hoo yell. But you're thinking of Thundercats. Yeah. Yeah. But there's not a lot to this. No. Duggan's offense is largely just basic punches, so the match isn't terribly interesting when he's in control, which is, as you pointed out, basically the entire match. Yeah. Saturn gets in a more exciting move or two, though along with some surprisingly wispy punches and clotheslines, Malenko shows some good fire, but this isn't their kind of match, and you can tell. The story of Duggan recruiting and then not using the varsity club ticking them off is kind of interesting. It'd be stronger if Duggan didn't actually start reaching for the tag near the end, but I guess you can say it was too late by then. It was fun to see the Varsity Club again, and the match had a decent enough outline. There's just not enough actual content to make it good. Also, I now very much want to see Mike Rotunda versus Dean Malenko. Yeah? That seems like that would be fun. That would be, yeah. <laughs> so on the following Nitro, the uh, members of the Varsity Club are in a tag team match against Harlem Heat, who we'll see later in this show, and they explain that they turned on Duggan because he refused to tag and work as a team. It's pretty extensive reason why they're heels now, because they thought he was being a dick, and it's not really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as far as the actual story goes, it's will shock you, but Duggan does not follow through with what he said he would. <gasps> I know. Now, bear in mind, Duggan is the true American face. So when they confront him with the fact that he lost the match and must do what he says, his response is, well, I was lying. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this leads to them understandably beating him up. But again, they're the bad guys? I guess. But this leads to the return of the Filthy Animals, the faction with Billy Kidman, Eddie Guerrero, and Mysterio, and others who we don't get to see on this show for some reason. Yeah. Don't live with the Varsity Club. Same. Question. Did that sign in the beginning of the show summon the Varsity Club with the Greek letters? Maybe. It is Kevin Sullivan. He's got all that mystic mystic stuff. And, and yeah, and yeah, I see what you're getting at. Greek, the Greek stuff. He did used to be a druid. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 Greek and mysticism, so maybe. Uh, for the Varsity Club, they'll have a fairly short run in WCW. They'll follow this feud up with going against the uh, Creative Control, who we'll see mm-hmm. later in this show. And they will leave their promotion in, you guessed it, January. Yep. Rotunda and company, most of them end up going back to All Japan Wrestling. Tony throws to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is backstage with the Misfits, who now have Oklahoma in a cage. Gene asks, how and why? The Misfits talker, I know nothing about the Misfits, says the Misfits are making sure Oklahoma keeps his word so Vampiro can get his five minutes with Oklahoma. This was totally unnecessary. In a minute, the Misfits are going to wheel Oklahoma's cage out to the ring, so all this did was show us that they had Oklahoma in a cage about 60 seconds before we'd find that out anyway. Yeah, most people know the Misfits basically from their logo, which so many people have on shirts and like bumper stickers that don't actually couldn't name a single Misfit song. Okay, which is kind of funny. They remind me of those characters that are in the movie Weird Science when they're trying to make them look cool and everything. They're like really bad, post-apocalyptic, like 
people. It's it's odd. It, isn't there a cartoon with something in the Misfits? Um, I'm not sure. It's not the same ones, but yeah. Okay. Our fifth match is Vampiro with the Misfits versus Dr. Death Steve Williams with Oklahoma, technically. If Vampiro wins, he gets five minutes in the ring with Oklahoma. The referee for this match is Charles Robinson. So, the previous month's show, Oklahoma debuted to the joy of basically just Ed Ferreira and Vince Russo. In their debut, Oklahoma talks crap about Vampiro, and that sort of sets things off. He basically goes after them, Vampiro's the face. Believe it or not, Vampiro was the face in this situation. I know. Vampiro's never the face with you, Bob. In this in storyline, <laughs> he is definitely the face. Uh, this leads to a very strange match on Nitro between Dr. Dusty Williams and Jerry Only, who is the lead guy in the Misfits, by the way. Oh, okay. It makes reading Wikipedia page very confusing, because they'll see sentences begin with the word only, and I don't realize it's his last name half the time I read it. <laughs> That's just my issue, though. Okay. It's part of the bill, but obviously Vampire went to get his hand in Oklahoma, so the only way they would do it is this scenario they dug up from 1985, just like the idea of the Varsity Club. <laughs> Vampiro went to get Oklahoma alone, but the future UWA World Heavyweight Champion must first beat the former UWF Heavyweight Champion. There you go. More basic rock. This show is killing me loudly with its songs. Aww. As far as I can tell, this is not a Misfits song, which would make way too much sense. Yeah. I did remember where Misfits came from. Okay. It was the opposing band that went against Jim and the Holograms. Oh, you're <laughs> okay. right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, you're right. My head hurts. <laughs> nice. Ugh. Again, this whole show is a cartoon. Yes, very much so. The green lighting for Vampiro's entrance looks cool anyway. It seems like colored lighting is this show's new cool thing. And as mentioned, the Misfits bring Oklahoma out in his cage, rendering their interview totally pointless. Oklahoma's microphone is on, and he apologizes to Tony for everything he's ever said and tells him to call somebody to get him away from the Misfits. Tony says sorry, no one would listen to him since he's a B-teamer, which I guess is referencing an earlier Oklahoma insult. It is, yeah. Dr. Death, Steve Williams, is still an intimidating presence years after we last saw him. Vampiro dives off the top of Oklahoma's cage onto Williams as he enters. Oklahoma calls the match from his cage. They fight outside until Vampiro hits a sidekick and throws Williams in. The Misfits harass Oklahoma, and he asks Tony if anyone ever bothers him at the announce table. Tony says no. Have either of them ever watched a wrestling show? Yeah. Even this show, really? Yeah. Vampiro and Williams trade chops, and Oklahoma repeatedly yells, CHOP! 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 Weird bit as Williams just kind of stands there waiting for Vampiro to hit him. Williams sends Vampiro butt over tea kettle with some three-point stance charges and hits more chops for more Oklahoma yelling. Vampiro dodges a corner charge and Oklahoma yells, Miss! 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 That, that was a little funny. I think he has his own echo. <laughs> yeah. He's doing the Jim Ross thing that Jim Ross will sometimes much more rarely repeat a move named three times to emphasize it. Yeah. But that's the only thing that he knows that Jim Ross does, that and calling something vicious. Yeah. So he just repeats those two things ad infinitum. It's the Data Carvey School of Impressions. Pick one thing someone's done once in their life, and then make that all they ever do. Yeah. 
Vampiro back suplex for two, but he's slow to go up top, and Williams wins a brawl with an eye rake and gets a superplex, prompting the misfits to interfere like the best babyfaces do. Williams disposes of them with ease. Oklahoma rightly points out that the misfits really should have gotten Vampiro DQ'd there, but they don't. Vampiro recovers and hits a spin kick, but Williams counters another with a back suplex, then beats the hell out of Vampiro on the ground. Robinson tries to pull him away, so Williams grabs him and throws him to the mat, getting DQ'd. Vampiro wins. Dr. Death keeps beating up Vampiro while Oklahoma complains about the DQ and his upcoming match, but Oklahoma realizes that Vampiro is down and maybe he can take him after all. Security comes out to encourage Dr. Death to leave. Oklahoma congratulates Dr. Death, but Dr. Death shakes his cage and the barricades as Williams is ushered backstage. Thoughts on this one? There's two ways to look at this match. If you can watch it without the sound on, it's actually kind of decent. There's good <laughs> back and forth bits with Dr. Death. He really comes out best in the situation they go anybody. Because other than being dumb enough to get himself DQ'd, he does his moves right. He has his, he has his menace down. He has his facials down. He's clearly a veteran that knows what he's doing mm-hmm. in a match like this. Vampiro, to his credit, takes a pretty vicious beating from Dr. Dusty Williams, as <laughs> most people do. Even Ron, Ron Simmons, his big guy, was taking a beating from him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've seen Vader take some blows from him, so that's just what you do. You just get a beating from him. His his name is probably a clue. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I thought it was like a merciful thing, like quick death. Ah, okay. So yeah, if you watch it without the sound, it's actually a pretty decent match. It is still the weird thing that the Misfits, while they are admittedly punk rock, sort of, if it makes sense they wouldn't go by the rules, it is weird that Charles Robinson just is okay with it. He used to be a corrupt referee for Ric Flair, so maybe that's just sort of a holdover. Maybe, maybe. Once you're a heel, you can't really stop being a heel fully. Yeah. Now, of course, the way most people are going to watch this match is with sound on, as you would assume. And Oklahoma ruins it. Whatever enjoyment you can get, for the most part, is over, just sort of overrun or superseded by Oklahoma shouting and being really annoying in the cage. Mm-hmm. You think, given how much the Misfits constantly go after him, that just once they would like knock his headset mic off. Yeah. That'd actually be kind of funny. Yeah. I guess why I can't do it in the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only two good things about his act are the one miss, miss, miss bit that was actually kind of funny, and Tony Schiavone's general reactions to the gimmick, I think, are, are generally pretty funny. Yeah. It's sort of sardonic uh, response to him. Yeah. Kind of worth it, but yeah. Schiavone reacts well to the gimmick, but I could be watching Schiavone reacting well to Bobby Heenan making mm-hmm. good jokes. I'd much yeah. rather have that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I actually did like Dr. Death's portrayal, whatever character he's manifesting right now, you know, some sort of caveman destroyer. (laughs) Yes. Pretty much, yeah. I want to say that Oklahoma's little John's impersonation needs some work. It's like, chops, (laughs) chops, 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 chops. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It was a little distracting, but at the same time, you know, what else were they going to have him do the whole time? Mm Mm-hmm. If they're going to have him be part of the, the announce team, he's got to do something that is like have him stand out uh, so you know that he's he's doing that because, you know, they're not focusing on him mm-hmm. as a secondary character. Honestly, uh, the saving grace for this is uh, Dr. Death's uh, performance. Not that, not that 
Um, I almost said Vampiro. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter, really. Like, you know, he, he just drinks fire. <laughs> that was the only reason why this was bearable for me. And in so, at some points, enjoyable. Mm. But, brief. Yeah, for me, this had a few interesting spots, but it didn't really get enough time to build any kind of cohesive story, and the story it had was confusing. Vampiro and the Misfits are the faces, but they're the ones breaking the rules to try and double or triple team the heel, Dr. Death. And is Vampiro strong or weak? Early on, he seems to be fighting even with, or even overwhelming, Dr. Death, but then it starts looking like he has absolutely no hope without interference, and just gets lucky that Dr. Death is having far too much fun beating him up to be willing to stop for the referee. Action-wise, this was okay, and it has a few good spots, but... The story made little sense, and the Oklahoma commentary got old very, very fast. Yeah. It's kind of funny, I was thinking about this when we watched it. So, Vince Russo, after all this stuff happens, ends up in TNA. And he's one of the people that brings us the King of the Mountain match. It's a reverse ladder match where you have to climb a ladder to hang a tile to win, rather than pulling the tile down. But there's a whole other side to it where you have to pin somebody to be eligible to hang a title. And the person who was pinned goes in the penalty box, which is a big cage right in front of the ring. This must be the inspiration for at least that part of it, Vince Russo. Even the point where Vampiro was jumping off the cage at people. Because that's also a very common spot in King Mountain. Uh, I would imagine so, yeah. Something came out of this. Yes. Positive or negative. So, because of Vampiro winning that match, our sixth match is Vampiro with the Misfits, versus Oklahoma without Dr. Death. Referee for this match is Charles Robinson. Oklahoma begs to be let free of the cage before Vampiro can recover, but it takes a while for Doug Dillinger to come over and unlock the cage. At least he still got there faster than he did for Disco Inferno. Yes, true. <laughs> Oklahoma gets in the ring and takes off his hat and commentates for his own moves as he attacks Vampiro with kicks, a DDT that looks more like Vampiro slamming him, and an imitation Garvin stomp that isn't near as brutal. Vampiro recovers and slaps him down, and he tries to escape, but the misfits roll him back in and knock his microphone off. Oklahoma punches Vampiro in the crotch, but Vampiro comes back with an Uranagi. The misfits come in and beat up Oklahoma, while Vampiro puts on Oklahoma's hat and yells to the crowd in a failed attempt to have a personality. Vampiro and the Misfits pinball Oklahoma around, and Vampiro hits the nail in the coffin and pins Oklahoma. Robinson seems a little confused, but counts to three to give Vampiro the win. Vampiro and the Misfits kind of stand around doing nothing until one at least does a weird little stomping dance, and they put Oklahoma's hat back on him. Thoughts on that one? So my big issue here is there's way too long of a gap between the two matches. Mm -hmm. This whole... thing is to make Dr. Dusty Williams super strong, which I'm not opposed to, it just I know it doesn't really go anywhere, so it's kind of kind of pointless in the long run. So he has to be down for a while to sell Dr. Dusty Beatdown, I guess is the idea. Mm-hmm. And to make Oklahoma confident, but they could have gotten there a lot faster. Mm-hmm. There's thankfully not too much Oklahoma actually trying to wrestle in or fight in this match. There's enough there where you get the character, because thankfully you, he's not doing commentary while in the ring. Well, he is for the first half of the match. But, I mean, yeah, not not a, not nearly as much as when he's in the cage. I mean. Right, yeah. He's always distracted and or winded enough that he can't do both at the same time. My other thing is it feels like this should be a much quicker squash. Like, Vampiro would tend to be down, 
they get to the the cage pretty quickly, and he like pops up and hits him a couple moves and pins him. Yeah, at worst, do it where it goes up to the point where Vampiro slaps and he rolls out and the Misfits roll him back in and just go to the finish from there. Yes. But instead, he punches Vampiro in the balls and gets a little tiny bit more offense, at least. Yeah. kind of drags on for a while. <laughs> yes. Not as good as the last time we got this match, like, 14 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> that was J.J. Uh, Dillon. Yes. Like you said, they could have shortened this uh, considerably, even if it was just move him around all four corners diagonally twice <laughs> so that like it looks like he's covered the entire gamut of what they could do <laughs> and they could easy, easily have each misfit be at a corner and someone in the middle just throws him back and forth and then they just do a finishing move and be done with it yeah and they could have done more stuff with the cage too i think in, in either match mm-hmm. they could have pulled out some final fight moves and it would have been better <laughs> <laughs> so was this actually a match or not? That's the question I had at the end of it. No. Robinson's out there, but he doesn't really do anything, even when Oklahoma's getting blatantly beat up by a whole group of guys. And he actually seems very confused when Vampiro goes for a pin. So I wonder if he thought it's just five minutes to beat Oklahoma up, not an actual match. That is generally how that works. But last time we saw this at, our, at 85, it was definitely an actual match. Right. But it, yeah, in the time between the two, until we haven't covered yet... They'll do it where you get five minutes alone with them in a cage or this or that. Right. And it's not really a match. It's just to get your hands on the manager. So they seem to have a miscommunication about like whether this is legitimately a match or not, which is weird. Also, if it's not a match, then why would Oklahoma be willing to get into the ring with him in the first place if he can't like get a win over him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he could easily pin him in the beginning while he's still down. That makes sense to me. Right. But if it's not a match, then he can't pin him. But it apparently is a match, except that the referee is confused by it being a match. Yeah, I just don't get how this works. (laughs) It sucked anyway. Vampiro gets beat up by a manager slash announcer until suddenly he just decides not to be beat up anymore and wins. (laughs) The story continues to make no sense as the faces quintuple team the heel. This was short, but there's still no reason it should have gone as long as it did. It was pretty painfully bad. And... If the Misfits were going to jump in in mass anyway, why not just do it at the start when he's beating up Vampiro? Mm. You're you're blatantly going to do this, so oh. just do it. They have faith in Vampiro. They shouldn't have, apparently. Clearly more than you. Yeah. <laughs> John has been driven speechless. If by I all say this. a word, it just makes it seem like that it deserves some words. Okay. <laughs> It's hard to find a lot of stuff on the Misfits and WSW. Um, there's a couple of different stories as to why they come in and then why they leave. Supposedly, this is all Vampiro's idea. He saw them presented the idea of them being a wrestling. They thought TV exposure would be great for them. And apparently, Jerry Only, the lead guy, really got into the idea of being a big wrestling superstar. Apparently, he mostly lost that motivation after they, they put him in the match I mentioned, like a Dr. Death in a cage, when he got hurt pretty badly. Okay. As basically, most people had. 99 in a in a match with Dr. Death get hurt. Yeah. Obviously, he was still here, so he wasn't, like, seriously injured, but enough that it kind of softened the thing for him. Second thing is, supposedly, the Misfits left because WCW wanted to trademark all the stuff around them, like their name and their logo. Okay. And they're like, uh, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, I can see that being a problem. Yes. Because they they were and are still an active band today. Yeah. In the, like, 25th iteration, but still. 
the more bizarre one I'm only going to mention because the people's names are kind of funny is according to Vampiros a few years ago, he claims the other conflict is that the guitar player of the Misfits fell for Randy Savage's girlfriend slash valet at the time, Gorgeous George. I mentioned this only because the guitarist's name is Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein. <laughs> that's wow. Dang. That's a name. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so that's three reasons why they may have left. I tend to lean more to the middle one, but it is funny that there's a guy named Frankenstein that reminds the lady named Gorgeous George. As far as the actual storyline, Vampire and the Misfits, who hang around a little longer after this, but not much, get involved in the storyline with David Flair. So, I guess a step up? That's hard to say. It's a lateral move, maybe? Yeah. Oklahoma moves on from this to challenging for the Cruiserweight title. That is a real thing that happened. Oh, my gosh. Who's it held by at that point? Medusa. Oh, okay. He challenged her at the January show. Wow. I wish I was kidding. We go backstage, where Kurt Hennig, Vincent, now Shane, get it, and the tag team called Creative Control are talking to the powers that be. Laparka stands on a chair in the background like he's an office decoration or something. Lord knows the office set needed one. There's literally nothing in there other than what looks to be a cheap table serving as a desk. Hennig asks if the powers have suggestions. Powers apologizes because his head is someplace else, and something big is going down tonight, and tells them to go out there and take care of things to become number one contenders. Everybody leaves, including Laparka with chair. That was pointless. We go to Mike Tanay, who is with Harlem Heat and their lady friend, Midnight. Harlem Heat, tonight you're taking on creative control to determine the number one contenders to the WCW World Tag Team titles. However, it seems that uh, as of late, there's a little friction between the three of you. You know, listen, Mike, straight up, Harlem Heat and Midnight. See, we're in this thing together, and as far as problems go, ain't no problem. That's just a rumor. If you... Won't you tell it like it is? Don't sugarcoat it, brother. Won't you tell it like it is? You know, everything was okay to this overbearing, hard-head grandstander guy with the group. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what I ever did to you, but if you have something to say to me, say it to my face. Look, man, me and you have been up and down the road. We have fought our way to the top. We done did everything we had to do in this business. But you know what? Tonight, I ain't watching your back tonight. What? You talking about, man? Come back here, man. Simple little segment here that just established the dissension in Harlem Heat over their tag partner. Uh, Booker is approving of her, and Stevie Ray is not. This did what it needed to do, I guess, but there's not really anything else to say about it, I think. Other than there's a real problem in this one with everyone starting to talk before the microphone is actually in front of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so our seventh match is Creative Control, that's Gerald and Patrick, Get it? with Kurt Hennig, with Shane, Versus Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray, with Midnight, for the right to be the number one contenders to the WCW Tag Team titles. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. It is a six-person match for the two-person tag team titles. Yes. Slightly weird. Midnight was a another power plant call-up. Thank you, Assassin number one. <laughs> yep. And teamed up with Harlem Heat, as we established in the various promos, Steve Ray did not like her. 
Weirdly, he didn't like her before she really did anything. I guess because he's clearly going to be the heel in the storyline. It's really him having issue with her and Booker T keeping her around that causes the problems. So it's uh, no means her in the situation. Steve, Steve Ray still thinks that girls have cooties. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. As for Creative Control, they were tag team champions about three weeks before this show, but they lost the titles to Bret Hart and Goldberg, who then lost them the next week to The Outsiders. So they want their uh, title shot back. Although, as previous team, I'm not sure why they don't have another one, particularly given that they work for the powers that be. Yeah, that's a little weird. you think if anyone would be able to say we get the, the ex-champions return match, it would be the guys that literally work for the guy that's controlling the company. Creative Control are two bald guys in suits and sunglasses, and they're named after Gerald Briscoe, who we saw way back at Starcade 83, and Pat Patterson, Vince McMahon's henchman characters in the WWF. Vincent, now going by Shane, is named after Shane McMahon, Vince McMahon's son. Oh, I thought it was the Western Shane. Ah, if only. Creative Control are twin brothers Ron and Don Harris, who will later wrestle under their own names. I like Hennig's uh, gold and black outfit tonight. That looks pretty cool. Yeah. Booker T comes out on his own. The lights go out, a bell tolls, and when the lights come back on, midnight is suddenly there. Stevie Ray doesn't show. I'm going to call Creative Control A and B because the announcers can't even tell me which one is which. They fight with just the front of their shirts untucked, which looks weird. Booker and Control A start, with A landing early blows by eating a Booker spin kick for one. B saves, and A tags him and holds Booker for punches. Booker soon fights him off with a flying forearm and works the arm, then tags Midnight. Midnight uses kicks and basic wrestling to counter B's hair pulling, then tags Booker. Heenan clarifies that Gerald is the bald creative control member. Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame one of them is not like, really fat and one of them is really muscular that make it easier to tell them apart. Yeah. <laughs> a trips Booker from outside on a whip, while Hennig has Nick Patrick distracted, so Booker beats him up until Hennig comes to help. Hennig tagged in, and he and Control trade off working over Booker until Booker hits a jumping axe kick and tags Midnight. She does well until Shane distracts her, and Hennig clotheslines her out of the ring. Control beat her up outside, and I lose track of which is A and B. Booker saves, and they flee. Hennig drags Midnight to the apron by her hair, and he and Control wear Midnight down until she manages to push Hennig all the way across the ring to tag Booker to a great crowd reaction. Except that Patrick somehow missed the tag despite watching her intently the whole way. So he sends Booker out. Hennig and Control keep beating Midnight up as Stevie Ray comes down. Booker, still angry, tells Stevie to leave and then just ignores him. Control keeps doing the one guy holds Midnight for the other strike double team because that's the only one they appear to know. Pretty much. Mm -hmm. Control gets zero off a series of elbow drops as Booker saves so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight dodges an awful second rope elbow drop by one of the control guys. Stevie argues with Nick Patrick, but Midnight tags Booker and he beats up all the heels and hits a beautiful Harlem sidekick. Booker gets a spine buster on a control guy as Patrick finally stops talking to Stevie. It gets one, but Hennig saves by punching Booker in the face with taped up brass knuckles. Stevie argues with Midnight outside, distracting her, as Hennig escapes before Patrick can notice the weapon, and a control guy gets the three count and the win. Creative Control are the number one contenders. 
Midnight goes to check on the unconscious Booker, and Stevie Ray just walks off, leaving them there. Thoughts on this one? So, there's definitely some good action here. It's not a complete waste. I'm Booker, literally and figuratively, is an uphill battle here because he's got to wrestle, obviously, against the odd, but also against essentially a story that puts him in the situation. Mm -hmm. It's rare that I want Stevie Ray tagging in of a match because he has so little he really gives to a match, but he does give something. Mm -hmm. It's just weird that this is such a big show. Theoretically, the biggest show of the year, though, obviously, there's some debate over that among people that you worked there. You would think you would have had Harlem Heat wrestle together, have something bad happen, but they still win, and then the title match, the betrayal happens, not yeah. the other way around. Midnight, to her credit, has very limited offense, but everything she can do is actually done really well. Yes, absolutely. And she takes a pretty good bump, the one she takes from Hennig, where she clotheslines from behind and flips over the ropes to the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other than the weird thing where the bell told and she appears like Bray Wyatt in the ring. It's, <laughs> I like her a lot. It's just not much coming for her, unfortunately, but it's nice to see her get at least a little moment here. <laughs> we have the, again, the lazy brass knuckles, maybe possibly wrapped in tape, which would make them less effective. But yeah, I guess the way they're so deadly, if shoes can knock you out, brass knuckles, which are actual weapons that are illegal in many countries, have to be taped up so they don't make your head explode upon it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This would be a bloodier show than Starcade 85 if that happened. That'd be a hard one to top, but <laughs> yes, would do it, it yeah. It's just a shame that just the whole match is just so busy. Well, with, like, six people in and around the match. Not even counting TV Ray, shows up at the end. If they had a singles match, like, you had Kurt Hennig and Booker T, great match. That would be great, yes. Or even an even match where at least the story is playing throughout the match of TV Ray being unsure when to tag or something like that. I'll be more interested in this weird two and three handicap match. Mm -hmm. Kind of a confusing match because at, at first I didn't realize, I know they were talking about handicap and everything. And I'm like, at first I didn't realize it was three versus two because like, you know, obviously I was looking at thing a and thing B <laughs> and it was infuriating me that the obvious gimmick they could have is who's the legal person. And the only tag that seems to be questioned is, is where Midnight tries to tag out. Yeah, true. I thought they could have played that differently, but hey, surprise me. <laughs> I actually did like Midnight's entrance. I thought it was different. Mm -hmm. It was something slightly ominous about it. Definitely, it was the only character that kind of just appeared, which I thought was great. I thought that the promo before it was a good lead-in for the drama that was supposed to unfold. The whole time, I was like, Stevie, come on, man. Just just, <laughs> just give them a chance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I was a little upset. I thought when Midnight was crawling to, to tag uh, Booker T that she was going to be held back and Stevie was going to reach in and he would tag himself in and then redeem himself kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I thought that would have been a much cooler way of using it. And they could still, you know, lose and everything. But I thought it would have been an unexpected yeah. way of getting him in the match. Just to, just to show that, you know what, we're going to put our difference aside and move forward. But they when they didn't do that, when I thought they lost that cool opportunity, it went downhill for me. Yeah, because it's kind of... He tells us before the match, I don't like Midnight, and I'm not going to help you. Then we get to the match, and he doesn't like Midnight, and he doesn't help them. There's no change over mm -hmm. the course of the night with him. It would give him an opportunity to redeem himself with Booker T, redeem himself with the audience, and potentially open up a, a dialogue to incorporating Midnight in their future endeavors. 
Yeah. It would have been an acknowledgement. You're part of this team. I see what you're doing. I think that would have been a much more enjoyable storyline for me. Mm-hmm. You either want to have them actually try to turn back good, even short term, or at least act like they turn good and then betray them more overtly. Yeah. Like you could have, he could have been there for the hot tag, act like he was going to fight and then turn around and tagged Booker and left, for instance. Yeah. Or he could have, you know, gotten tagged in and then just walked out and gotten lost the account out. Or he could have laid down. <laughs> but we've, we've had enough of people laying down, I think, from last year. So oh, fair <laughs> enough. But, you know, I, I kind of expect it, though. Yeah, Booker and Hedig made this watchable, but that's about all I can say for it. Creative control have nothing, just the most basic of punches and kicks. These guys have actually been a tag team together for years by this point, but it feels like they're just starting out. Yeah. I can't believe they were in the ring so much when Kurt Hennig was there. Midnight didn't do a heck of a lot more, but as you noted, she's very new in her career. So uh, that's less of a surprise. And she did a good job selling. And like you said, just about everything she actually does is performed mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. Yep. The Stevie Ray bit was kind of interesting, and he did a decent job of leaving it questionable whether he was actually trying to interfere with Booker and Midnight or just accidentally choosing bad moments to argue. Until he visibly tried to grab Midnight at the end, at least. Okay, storyline. Bad match. There's one weird spot in there. Midnight does a dropkick to, I think, one of the creative control guys. Actually, it's a couple, I think. And the second one, she stays on the ground longer than I was expecting. And Henry like, runs and attacks her afterwards. Yeah. I'm wondering if he was supposed to be in there quicker. Because he seems like he's selling the landing from a dropkick. Like, suddenly, it's a really powerful thing against her and he runs in to take advantage of that whereas it felt like it's supposed to be the dropkick and he runs it quickly to get her while she's getting up mm-hmm. yeah i can see that timing is definitely a, a thing tonight <laughs> yes for sure that miss tag still bothers me yeah he is literally watching the entire time mm-hmm. the whole way there and yet somehow he misses the fact that they tag yeah. And he doesn't look away. No. He's just like, I am so focused on the person trying to make the tag that I'm not watching her hand actually make the tag. What? <laughs> maybe Hennig yelled, they didn't tag really quickly after they tagged. And he's like, huh, well, maybe they didn't. Maybe, yeah. He's like, uh, I thought I saw that, but... He could have sold it by looking away real quickly. He was distracted by something. Yeah, that's one of the worst excuses for that spot that I have ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's just such a large lead-up to uh, disappointment. Same thing yeah. with my missed storyline. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll get too much story surrounding this, but suffice to say, Scott Hall is missing on the second night or after this show. And there's a bit where D.D. Dillon confronts Kevin Nash and Jeff Jarrett in the back. He explains he's just the messenger. They really cut in after like his line, so we don't hear what he says to them first. We just get them reacting to what he apparently said off camera. Maybe Kevin Nash annoyed at him because he's told them that they have to give up the tag titles because Scott Hall was not around. So he just like flippantly throws the belt at him and they punch him in the stomach. So the tag titles are vacated. This is the point of all that, which makes wing number tenorship completely pointless because they hold a tournament to determine the tag titles. <laughs> Come on! You can't even, like, give the number one contenders an automatic, like, finals thing? It doesn't seem to matter if, if they did. Oh, my gosh. As far as the Harlem Heat situation, as you can tell, obviously, things don't get fixed between the two of them. 
Unfortunately, Midnight doesn't play too much of a role after January, February. He's not around for much after that. I think the idea is they send her back for more training, and then stuff happens with the company going under, so they don't bring her back, fortunately. What this leads to is TV Ray quitting the team and forming his own version, Harlem Heat 2000. Yes. The giant air quotes, much improved, and air quotes, version of Harlem Heat. With the former Ahmed Johnson, a.k.a. Big T. Creative control, as of based on stuff that happens after the show, turns face and feuds with the varsity club. And by turning face, I mean they stop wearing the white dress shirts over their black tank tops. Okay. That's what their face is. Tony throws to a video of Dustin Rhodes' return as Seven. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this gimmick. Rhodes returned to WCW after a stint in the WWF as Gold Dust, and the idea to bring him back in was this creepy Seven character who was dressed all in black with a wide-brimmed hat with his skin painted all white, basically like the villains from the movie Dark City. Yes. I mean, almost exactly like the villains from the movie Dark City. Suably similar to Dark yes. City. They ran loads of promo videos with him creepily floating outside this little kid's bedroom window at night, including one where he touches the window and the kid touches the same point, and then the kid's eyes turn all black. They're yes. building up him being, I don't know, a demonic pedophile or something? Anyway, it comes to his first actual appearance, and there's this big entrance with smoke and fire, and he floats on wires to the ring. Then he just utterly drops the gimmick and cuts a promo calling it silly crap and blaming the powers that be for giving him the gimmick. It's one of the strangest false starts, I mm-hmm. guess, in, in wrestling history. Supposedly, the issue comes down to um, Turner executives seeing the vignettes and understand they're going, what the hell is this? <laughs> thinking exactly what you were thinking and being demonic pedophile or some sort of child kidnapping person. They don't want to be a horror, horror movie's character, maybe. Yeah. Which, to a certain extent, is fine, but the the direction they take it, where he's floating outside the kid's window, and then, yeah, mind controlling or something. It is seriously creepy. It's just possession. It's not It's not, It's not. not dirty. And he's just taking over his soul. But yeah. it's, nine, it's nine-tenths of the law, John. <laughs> nine whole tenths. Mm. But yeah, supposedly the executives didn't like that, and they told him, you have to drop this, or, you know being money away from you. So their solution was to have him come out as seven and then immediately drop the gimmick rather than just ignoring what they'd done and have him come out as Dustin Rhodes. Yeah. So he's scary Poppins his way into the, the ring and then he drops it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Awesome. They seem to spend around fifty to $100,000 on all the work between shooting those vignettes and having him float in the ring on wires. Just to waste money. Yeah. I, I will not lie to you. I paused the show and I said, this has to be my MVP before I knew who it was. <laughs> I was like, whatever this is, I am interested. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's hard to say uh, on this show. I, I have to say, Al, though, you're, you're, I'm not sure about your story on, on one point. You say okay. that the Turner executives saw this gimmick and told the WCW guys, no, you can't do it. Yes. So what you're saying is that Turner has ever actually watched WCW. Uh, yeah. Maybe. See, I, I don't buy that because WCW stayed in business for this long. True. <laughs> anyway, the video package covers Rhodes dropping the seven gimmick and beating up Jeff Jarrett and Jarrett challenging him to a bunkhouse brawl at Starcade. 
Jared is one of the flunkies of the powers that be, which include Crave Patrol and possibly the parka lur- for lurking in the background, and occasionally Tank Abbott. So he's a natural foil to send after Rhodes, who, to be fair, does also attack Jared, as you saw in the video package. Mm-hmm. And he, he cost them his spot in the World Title Tournament they were holding the previous month. Ah, uh, okay. So there's more back and forth between them. And there's a confusing thing, which I won't waste too much time talking about, the fact that they build up the Bunkhouse Brawl as being the match that Dusty Rhodes invented, although it's not exactly like any of the Bunkhouse matches we had. Yeah. Or aware of. It's sort of vaguely like it, but it's not enough that I'm like, oh, of course, it's your father's match. He's obviously, he's most connected with the Bunkhouse Stampede, which we haven't seen yet, but heard about at length from a cowboy and, well, a guitar played in the background. And briefly had tease at the end of the show we got to watch. But there are also Bunkhouse matches, which are generally singles matches with hardcore weaponry and such. Yeah, because Bunkhouse Stampedes are battle royales with weapons. But yeah, a Bunkhouse Brawl appears to be nothing until now. So I guess they're probably referring to bunkhouse match. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but never bunk beds. No. Only bunk houses. It's a house atop of another house. Yes. It's poorly designed. <laughs> or, you know, an apartment building. Hmm. <laughs> well, it's a whole house. It's a little different. Fair point. We go to Mike Tanay, who is backstage with Dustin Rhodes, who wears a Dusty Rhodes t-shirt. Tanay says Dusty Rhodes made the bunkhouse brawl famous. Dustin Rhodes says when he came back, he was told Dusty was no longer here, because that's business. Rhodes says that's bad business, and Jarrett's been bad-mouthing his father, but tonight, Jarrett bites the dust. Jarrett attacks to cut off the promo, and the two start brawling as I guess we're starting the match. (laughs) Another quick promo here, nothing really to speak of with it. Rhodes does fine letting us know he's angry, but there's only so much you can do in like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if John really wants that shirt he's wearing. That was a kind of great shirt, actually. It is a nice shirt. <laughs> yeah. It's like Dusty Rhodes Tour 1999 or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see if I can find that somewhere online. <laughs> no, I'm saying that's not, not a joke. I mean, it's, it's like Dusty Rhodes, and it's a really weird Dusty Rhodes shirt. Yeah. Uh, if there was a tea kettle shirt, I would be more interested in it, yes. to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Even if it's just like a picture of a tea kettle and has like little arrows. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That would be a great shirt, actually. <laughs> So our eighth match, which is already in progress, is Dustin Rhodes versus Jeff Jarrett in a bunkhouse brawl. That's a no-DQ, false-count-anywhere match. The referee is Billy Silverman. Dressed in street clothes, they brawl out onto the stage and fight past a ladder, and Jarrett runs Rhodes into a barricade. Jarrett gently removes a guitar from a wheelbarrow full of weapons, then runs the wheelbarrow into Rhodes' knee. They fight down the entrance ramp, each using the wheelbarrow, and head into the ring. Rhodes grabs some boards and a bull rope with cowbell from the wheelbarrow and uses those to beat up Jarrett. They end up fighting at and on the announce table. See, Tony, it does happen. Yes. Silverman yells at them to get in the ring, even though this is false count anywhere. He's a stickler for how normal matches work. Yeah. He's very confused. Rhodes leaves the cowbell outside as they go back in the ring, but keeps beating Jarrett up. Not that I want a bloodbath, but it feels kind of weird that Jarrett isn't bleeding after all of that. Rhodes throws powder at Jarrett and whips Jarrett with his belt. Silverman warns Rhodes, so Rhodes whips him too, since it's no disqualification. Rhodes actually duct tapes Silverman to the ropes, and then when Silverman yells at him, he duct tapes Silverman's mouth shut. Now I assume that was stuff he would have done as seven. <laughs> I did find that spot hilarious. Yeah. 
Rhodes chokes Jarrett with his leather chaps, but Jarrett mule kicks Rhodes in the crotch and takes over, using the chaps and a board against Rhodes as Hennig walks down to the ring. A piece of the board goes flying, so I hope nobody got hit. <laughs> three shows in the row of objects flying towards the crowd at high velocity. By the way, where are chaps on the clothing turned into weapons chart? Um, weird when you use them to whip, but I guess okay when you choke with them. Hmm. They're less effective than, than the boot, correct? Yes, I the would. boots are a knockout. So. Okay. I just want to yeah, make sure I know yeah, how yeah. it works. Depends on the length of the fringe. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's its power level. Hennig frees Silverman, taking the tape off his mouth looked like it sucked. <laughs> As Jarrett gets a sleeper hold, Rhodes fades, but his hand comes up on the third check, and he flips the bird for good measure. Rhodes outfights Jarrett and gets a big side slam for two, but Hennig breaks that up and several other Rhodes pins besides, even pulling Silverman out of the ring after Rhodes gets two off of kicking Jarrett in the crotch. So, Rhodes props Hennig in the corner and kicks him in the crotch too. Jared and Rhodes fight back up to the entrance ramp, and Rhodes climbs the set under the Jumbotron to just kind of hop off and lightly kick Jared. That was underwhelming. I really don't know what he was going for there. It's weird. Yeah. Jared crawls over to Chekhov's guitar and climbs up Chekhov's ladder as Hennig ambushes Rhodes. Rhodes bulldogs Hennig down right in front of the ladder, and Jared jumps off and nails Rhodes with the guitar for the three count and the win. Jarrett's weird country rock music plays as he poses with his broken t- guitar on the ladder. Silverman almost trips over Rhodes while raising Jarrett's hands. Thoughts on this one? I'll give him credit. It's a fairly creative brawl. They use a pretty wide variety of weapons. They don't or you use them to the point where they've lost all meanings like cookie sheets and, you know, trash can lids. Yeah. Right? Just, they mean nothing to me at this point. It's just... Like earlier tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is definitely a fulfillment of what you're missing from that first one. Yeah. Absolutely. I think my biggest problem with the match is really in the second half of it, where Kernig is at ringside and constantly interfering, although but not interfering as much as he could. He doesn't just get in the ring and beat up Dustin Rhodes with Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. He just keeps interrupting the referee's count, and Dustin Rhodes, ever the stupid babyface, keeps trying to make pins... Knowing full well the guy's just got to do it again. <laughs> Fear for you. There's a George Bush and the uh, fool me one, shame on you line there somewhere. <laughs> it is really funny to watch him push the wheelbarrow out and very gently set the guitar down. Because those things are made of like, like the weakest balsa wood. There's a bit in TNA where he has guitars that gimmick with a little pyro on them. And famously at one point, he does the accuracy of pyro on it, like big sparkler. And the back of the guitar blows out. <laughs> So cheaply they're made, he just throws it down and keeps going. Wow. He he can't possibly anything with that until the one shot for it, which is kind of funny. I will give the match one point and retroactively give a, another point to a match from earlier, which is that when Finley and Nobbs were fighting Ming, Nobbs gets thrown into a table randomly propped up against the wall, which he sort of breaks partway and is sort of sitting there. We're, what, um, five matches later? That's still back there. Yeah, and that's true. And Dustin is run to it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Likewise, we get to see the Surge uh, can container back there. <laughs> because it's the late 90s and Surge is a thing. Yes. But yeah, I, I think I, I like the first third of the match really strongly. It just it gets too predictable that there's no way he can win without completely immobilizing Hennig, which he tries, but then it doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. He does his, I'm kicking you the balls, I'm clearly kicking the turnbuckle pad underneath your balls, 
which you think would keep you out for a while. Then maybe it's a Kevin Courageous thing and it's it's just not effective anymore. <laughs> I don't know. So it's weird that he takes him out and then a minute later he's still attacked behind by him. Yeah. I feel like that should happen earlier in the status from the constant interference and then surprise he's back rather than surprise he's back like you've just here. Fair point. I like a lot of it but at a certain point it's just too obvious. He's robbed. <laughs> no, I don't like the two verse one thing. I know that that's part of the deal, but after seeing his cool intro with fire and, and everything, not that he, I was disappointed that he wasn't wrestling as seven. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't give him a, a fair shot. So I was really like crestfallen by the end of this. Some decent wrestling on both ends. It's nice to see Dusty or Dustin. Yes. <laughs> One of the, they're both dusty in my head. <laughs> I mean, they look very similar. The fact that we're actually getting some real use of all the props and everything <laughs> rather than just comic relief mm-hmm. is, is nice. Dusty holds on to one of the, the wooden stakes for like, like when are you going to use it? When are you going to use it? He like holds onto it and does like five or six moves before he mm-hmm. ever breaks it across Jarrett's back, which um, I think created a good suspense. And then, you know, he did a really good job with making it look like it plunged into him. I enjoyed the match. I just wasn't happy with the outcome. Mm-hmm. For me, this was an okay brawl, but one that didn't really have much intensity. I'm not in the blood makes matches better camp normally, but it just felt weird that this one didn't have anyone bleeding. We were seeing so many shots with weapons off into the face that it started feeling like there should be more consequences than what we were seeing. There were a few fun spots. Duct taping the ref was somewhat nonsensical. How was Rhodes going to win? But it made me laugh all the same. And it coming out, uh, conversely to what you were saying, although I do fully take your point, Mm -hmm. it actually made the match more interesting to me Mm -hmm. because he added an element to stop it feeling too repetitive, ironically enough to me. Yeah, I got you. But I do get your point on he breaks up every pin and somehow Rhodes doesn't realize for quite a while that he should deal with Hennig. Yeah. And that it doesn't work. The ending was interesting but odd. There's no way that Rhodes didn't see Jarrett climbing the ladder. I think it would have worked better if the Bulldog had been at a different angle, maybe. It's just lacked much in the way of emotion. I think these guys could do a lot better. No, I could see that, for sure. On your point of blood, I could see if they have kind of started interfering a lot and you know, do the heels to grab the guy and hit him with the weapon bit. So say maybe the um, the cowbell, for instance. Mm-hmm. Of course, face gets out of the way and then he gets hit. Maybe he's bleeding from that. Yeah. And that explains why he's down for a while. Oh, he's bleeding. He's yeah. knocked yeah. out. And then it's surprise he's back. Dracty would work more. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, Jarrett gets punched multiple times in the face with a cowbell no, yeah, outside I, the ring, and... Nothing. There's 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 no sign of anything important happening from right. that. Not, not just blood, but just, like, it's just, oh, he got punched a few times, and then he's just fighting again. Yeah, even Dustin's, uh, to me, a pretty fake-looking pantomime of pretending to stab him mm-hmm. didn't, yeah, didn't draw blood either. It was a little weird, too. Mm-hmm. You're pretending to stab him in the forehead, totally to draw blood, and yeah, it didn't do it. Yeah. This was definitely not, you know, Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard. No. <laughs> Tully is good, but he's bad. I mean, it's like one, of the, like one of the first Mortal Kombats that came to a game system, and they're like, when you hit him, powder flies off of Right, him. yeah, the Super Nintendo version of it, yeah. Right. Oddly enough, even though Dustin lost, 
I kind of wanted, after he picked up the guitar again, I kind of wanted him to jump off the, the ladder again and hit him again. <laughs> yeah. Like, make it worth it. Mortal Kombat finish him thing didn't really come through in my mind, but now it kind of does. <laughs> There's one wrestling game in like the GameCube um, Xbox era where they were adding women's wrestling because they were starting to be a thing again. Oh, right, yeah. And so you could have women wrestling, and they didn't think of the fact that you could put them in first blood matches because they didn't code women to be able to bleed no matter what happens in the match. Which I get the logic why they did that, but you could put them in a match where literally no one could win. Yeah, you could put them in a first blood match, but they can't bleed. No matter so, what happens. So, so yeah, the match cannot end. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin Rhodes would segue from this feud to feuding with Terry Funk um, in January and February. So Jeff Jarrett, he stays busy, but I can't really talk about that yet. Meanwhile, David Flair is in a storage closet or something with his gold crowbar and a teddy bear. He laughs and hits the bear with the crowbar. That was pointless. Finn. We go to a video package of the DDP-David Flair feud that explains absolutely nothing. Maybe Diamond Dallas Page can do better, as we cut to Mean Gene interviewing him backstage. DDP's shiny shirt kind of looks like he cut up one of those silvery garbage bags and made a shirt out of it, actually. (laughs) Not the best look. Hefty, hefty, hefty. (laughs) Gene says that Page's problems with David Flair are coming to a head and explains the crowbar stipulation. There's a crowbar on a pole that if you climb, you can use it as a weapon. Page says people keep telling him that Flair has problems. Flair does have problems. If you try to take out Paige and stalk his wife, you bet you have problems. Paige is going to have the crowbar in his hands. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bang. (laughs) Paige seems to get a little muddled at the end of the promo, but he makes it a little clearer what they're fighting about. I would have preferred a longer Paige promo and no video package. I feel like he could have made everything clear if he got more time. Yeah. His charisma's still clear, and he did the best he could, but these short promos are really annoying. It's just not enough time to do anything, so why bother? Mm-hmm. I'd just like to point out the future tense irony of DDP being mad that someone was talk his wife. <laughs> <laughs> He's got those crazy eyes looking over the, the glasses, too, which is a nice touch. Yes, yeah. It's like he has a combination not great look with the weird shirt and great look with the sunglasses. Yeah. I do have a question, though. Is he aware of the video packages backstage? Like, he, Does he know that he's got a golden crowbar back there now? or I assume not. Because, yeah, this is that era when it gets very confusing what's actually, quote-unquote, aired on television mm-hmm. and what is just stuff that only we get to see. Yeah. And I'm assuming that the David Flair uh, crowbar stuff is stuff only we're supposed to have seen. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe you could excuse it that uh, Paige was being prepped for cutting the interview at the time that was being aired or something, but... Because he needs a lot of time to prep for that 28 seconds, yes. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, he he is the guy that writes full binders full of match notes for anything he does, so... Mm -hmm. I think it's like in ancient Greece where only, like, the audience can hear the chorus. And these video packages are just the way to do that. I mean, there are some plays that actually play with that, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just... The narrative is never there for the actual players. So between the matches, Nitro Girls sort of appeared um, out of the darkness and sang the events of the story. Would that make the show better? That actually would make the show better. <laughs> I, I would I, like to see is that. that a, <laughs> is that a question? It's <laughs> <laughs> a clarification, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So our ninth match is Diamond Dallas Page versus David Flair in a crowbar on a pole match. Referee for this match is Charles Robinson. And as I mentioned, for this match, a crowbar is hung from a pole by a rope. If someone climbs up and gets the crowbar, they can use it. David Flair's craziness apparently comes from the aftermath of a match that DDP has with Ric Flair at Halloween Havoc, which is just to explain why he's wearing that Halloween Havoc shirt. The idea is he hasn't stopped wearing it since that show. Like, apparently it's the thought. Probably smells horrible. Smells worse than what Vader's uh, tights allegedly smelled like most of the time. (laughs) So it's like a Joker persona. It's a little bit of that, for sure. A little more Mr. Zazz, I would say. Yeah. But yeah, I can see that more. David Flair went crazy. Ric Flair is out um, because of that and some other storyline stuff. So DDP, ever the dumb babyface, has been trying to help him, which, as mentioned, has led to stalking and attacks. Didn't work out. Is is there like a particular reason why this is a crowbar on a pole match? or I think it's just David Flair using a crowbar to hit people before. Oh, okay. All right. Half-Life is very important. There you go. And because it's Vince Russo. TDP's music blessedly sounds like actual music. The downside is that it's a ripoff of an existing song. <laughs> we get a weird sign in the crowd. Hall fears hair gel. Not an accusation I would have expected. Yeah. Well, Page is doing his corner pose. David sneaks up on him and hits him in the ribs with a gold crowbar. Page rolls out of the ring holding his ribs, and Robinson takes the gold crowbar. David argues with Robinson and poses like he's won as Paige writhes in pain. Robinson brings ring announcer David Penzer over and tells him that Paige can't compete. Penzer starts to announce it, but Paige lunges up and grabs him, so we get a great shocked yelp over the microphone. (laughs) That was pretty funny. Paige drags himself in the ring, and Robinson signals that the match can start after all. Flair abuses Paige's ribs with knees, elbows, kicks, and stomps. Paige gets a roll-up for two, but Flair keeps working the ribs. And Paige is in so much pain he can't even slam David Flair, falling over with Flair on top for two. Paige counters a sunset flip by sitting down for two, but David rolls him over for two and hits a DDT for two and three quarters. Flair claims it was three and chokes Paige, but wastes time posing and Paige fights back. A David Flair clothesline earns a flip sell from Paige for two and a half. Flair catches a Page kick, but Page swings around into a lariat and both are down. They get up at the count of eight, and David punches Page in the crotch, body slams him, and puts on a slightly sloppy figure four. It gets a two count, but Page turns it over. David completely forgets to sell the pressure being reversed and just breaks. David gets the crowbar from the pole and swings at Page. Page ducks, slips around, and hits the diamond cutter for the three count and the win. The crowd erupts for Page's win. Page picks up David and props him on the top turnbuckle and hits a diamond cutter from the top. Page grabs the crowbar, but a woman runs out and shields David with her own body. The announcers reference her being someone who sent a tape to them and had a David Flair shrine in her room, so clearly a dangerous and highly disturbed individual. Page won't hit her, so he drops the crowbar and leaves her laughing insanely with the unconscious David. He starts to use the diamond cutter on Charles Robinson, too, but decides not to and leaves. Thoughts on this one? DDP does his best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As I've mentioned, DDP is very famous for super preparing and detailing every bit of a match out ahead of time. It's really not a time I can think of that doesn't work out. Like, never one that match goes off the rails. Mm-hmm. So, at the very least, you can get a dead-even, middle-of-the-road match of anybody with that formula. Yeah. 
that's basically true with this. He definitely does try to make David Flair look strong. Obviously, he puts in the initial handicap of the Rift being the weak point. So it sort of makes sense or leads in. But afterwards, he does definitely give him a lot more offense than he would mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah, the reversals are pretty strong. He sells it pretty well. Mm-hmm. But two weeks before this show, they have David Flair in the ring doing a promo about something or other. Mostly about DDP. DDP runs in the ring. David Flair has the crowbar, swings at him, misses, and takes a diamond cutter. And Mealy's kicked out of the ring. DDP downselling the idea of the match that we now have. So it's weird that the exact same finish is him dismissing the idea of the match and also the finish of this match. <laughs> it's a little strange. Flair did learn to spot, and his timing is pretty good. It's just, it's not really believable, is my mm-hmm. issue. I mean, I feel like if Stevens was reversed, he would sell the exact same way for me, which is not super complimentary. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I would still have to actually work at it, but you know, he would definitely do that same level for anybody, which is good and bad. Mm-hmm. DDP wins the moment that Carver actually enters the match officially, which is very weird given the situation <laughs> yeah, that of the is match. <laughs> it's decent basically because DDP wrote a really good match. It's just not executed believably to me. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of crazy in this. I did like the, you know, you're not going to count me out. I don't know why he was standing right there to announce that he's not going to be able to continue and that, that they could just end the match just, you know, by pointing and be be done with it. But I think it did a decent narrative. Tao's credit, you know, it wasn't fully believable. It would have been better if he actually did take a couple other hits from the Golden Crowbar and then have that disappear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just one of those things like he's like, what's wrong with you? And like throws it out of the ring, you yeah. know, and then, then he takes a cheap shot or something. He could have been reeling a little bit more, but it was predictable once he got his move off. You know, I was like, okay. I actually <laughs> kind of felt bad for him on the top rope. So we did the diamond cutter from there. But I guess he was trying to knock the sense back into him by doing yeah, that yeah. at the time. <laughs> I suppose. I'm glad they didn't go into more gratuitous, like, we're just going to beat each other up with crowbars at the end. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. Let's send out a, a crazed fan. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff in this show. <laughs> yes. Just a bit. Just a bit. Yeah, major credit to DDP here for doing his absolute best to make David Flair look good for most of this match. It's a bit of a tougher task than making the giant look good. Mm-hmm. David is not his father. Paige spends most of the match selling for David, and they've done a good job of setting it up to be all about David focusing on Paige's ribs. So it gives it a decent overall storyline, except for the part where David goes for the figure four after doing absolutely nothing to Paige's legs. The match was short, so while David's offense was limited, it didn't get too repetitive, and the diamond cutter was, as always, nice and smooth. Not good, but much better than I thought it was going to be. It's a reasonably respectable match, and I think we really can credit Paige with that pretty heavily. <laughs> I believe it's our first blank object slash person on a pole. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I think it is, yeah. Oh, no, nope, nope. There was the um, sombrero on a pole match with Manny Fernandez. Oh, that's true. Yep, yep. <laughs> I fully forgot that. I was about to say, let's see if this is our first one. We're setting the bar probably too high for the rest of them, but we'll see. <laughs> the Manny Fernandez one was fair, fair too. So we've yeah. actually had two pretty good, or respectable at least, something on a pole matches so far. Yeah. I imagine that's not going to last, but hey. <laughs> yeah. So I was curious about why the gold crowbar is a special weapon for him. Mm-hmm. 
and appreciate the level of research I do for this. So I did look this up, and gold is a denser metal than steel. So in theory, a golden crowbar would be more effective than a regular crowbar. Okay. And maybe it's like a you know that golden gun thing from, from the James Bond stuff that's super deadly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bear in mind that in the time between this last show we did and this one, DP is a two-time world champion. So if we fully skipped over because we missed these shows. Yes. So eventually, going into the new year, he will eventually go back out to the world title, which will be a blessing and a curse. Now, this left part's a little confusing, so bear with me. So the lady that comes in is Daphne. She becomes a valet for Flair. He forms a tag team with another wrestler who is named Crowbar. <laughs> oh my gosh so to be clear david flair and crowbar are an official tag team and it's not david flair and his like a crowbar he thinks talking to him. it was an actual person probably didn't write to be a crowbar come to life with like a magic wish or something yeah i was gonna say maybe it's actually the cro- the golden crowbar that became sentient and formed into a human form i mean if we watch i think it's sold out or whatever what it has them wrestle and that is in the video i will recant what i said here but i'm pretty sure just a guy named crowbar yeah after all this it is weird i would be ready to declare that the greatest wcw angle of all time i honestly if that actually was the story <laughs> just for the ballsiness of trying that his demented wish comes true and yeah yeah they spray paint the guy gold for the first few shows that would be awesome <laughs> John, John's, John's looking at us with the expression of ultimate despair. You, you want to see that story? You want to see that play? Don't you? Come yeah. on, be honest. <laughs> I mean, I could see some guys showing up. He's like, "My name is Barry," and he's like, "No, your name is Crowbar," and then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like forces it into the into his nickname, Crowberry. <laughs> or is it like a marathon man thing? He's got him strapped down. He keeps like pulling his teeth out, and your name is Crowbar. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> so he finally says it. There you go. The announcers say David impressed them in that last match, and Tony builds up the upcoming Sting versus Luger match with Miss Elizabeth's contract with Lex Luger at stake. Actually, I do have to make a note on that. This is okay. somewhat important. Lex Luger, uh, he returned the previous month. He officially said Lex Luger is dead. He's only the total package. I'm still going to call him Lex Luger. He'll take great offense at that. He'll punch me and go, Whoa! But if you think back at it, they announce him as the Total Package. They do, they do. They don't yes. want to say the words Lex Luger. That's true. So his official ring name is the Total Package. Okay. He's a Total Luger. Even though I wrote Luger on my notes too, so. <laughs> Tony throws to yet another video package as Heenan calls a beer vendor to get a couple cold ones. Something which I dearly felt like doing myself at this point. He's earned it, yeah. This one covers the Sting versus Luger feud. It gives us a actually pretty decent idea of what's going on, albeit still through a random collection of clips and sound bites without anything really tying it together. But I'm going to let Al take care of covering the actual story. Mm-hmm. Match 10, then, is the total package. Thank you. Still Lex Luger. <laughs> versus Sting with Miss Elizabeth. The referee for this match is Johnny Boone. The storyline is that the total package, ever since he came back, he sadly lost his generic diddle music uh, yes. joke in place of his very dramatic slow-mo unveiling of his body. Which I actually do like as yeah. an entrance. I think it's it's the coolest entrance on this show. Yeah. It's a, it's a decent replacement, at least. So he's come back, and Miss Elizabeth is back with him. Apparently, the idea is that somehow he controls her contract, which is with WCW. 
I don't know how that makes any sense, but it, apparently that's how it works. Package deal. Oh, jeez. It's not covered in the total video package. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, that's the story, is that he can try to force her to do stuff like wrestle in mud and stuff like that. That sucks. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the, pay, the payoff for that is, it also sucks, yes. Um, so naturally she goes to Sting, the person she's betrayed how many times? To help her. He agrees because he's Sting and he just helps everybody. Constantly to his own detriment. So this leads to the match between Sting and Total Package. The idea is he's going to try and force her freedom, but it's not like actually stipulated on the match. As far as I can tell, anyways. Everyone says that like her contract with Luger is like null and void if he wins the match. So mm, Okay. Yeah, Luger's out first, sadly, no longer having his oddly catchy entrance theme, but the new entrance is nice. Mm-hmm. Backstage, Sting walks with Elizabeth. He asks if she's got her bottle of mace, and she confirms that she does. He has her toss it and gives her a different bottle that he says is better, and they enter. It's cool that Elizabeth has a Sting-themed outfit now, too, but that Scorpion logo is unfortunately placed. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I don't think it's an accident, though. <laughs> yeah, probably. Sting is still in his crow look, but his trench coat now has a rainbow scorpion on the back, so a bit of a nod to the old, more colorful Sting there. He hands his bat to Elizabeth and gets in the ring. Luger attacks as Sting gets in. Sting escapes his coat, but Luger punches him down and stomps him in the corner, selling louder than Sting. Bless you, Luger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Luger throws Sting out and beats him up outside and accidentally earns a one Cena himself by kicking the steps when he slams Sting into them. He taunts Elizabeth as he puts Sting back inside and continues beating him up. A few elbow drops get one for Luger. Sting no-sells a suplex, and Luger doesn't notice as he's taunting Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Sting pinball Luger back and forth with slaps and punches until Sting lightly hits a dropkick. Luger's a little bit too far back. Yeah. They double-clothesline each other down. Elizabeth climbs in the ring with the bottle of mace, but goes to ask Luger something. Luger nods to her. Elizabeth turns, but Sting saw it all, and he smiles and waves at her. Elizabeth sprays Sting with the mace, but it's just silly string. For once in his career, Sting actually foresaw someone turning on him. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, that spot did get me really good. <laughs> Sting tells Elizabeth to leave, casually elbowing Luger down, earning epic Luger cells, as Luger tries to attack him. The announcers try to ruin everything by talking about swerves and using insider lingo. Elizabeth gets out of the ring, and Sting decimates Luger, building to a top rope splash with a huge hang time for two and three-fourths. More offense, and Sting gives a stinger call for a great response. A couple stinger splashes, and Luger collapses. Sting goes for the scorpion deathlock, but Elizabeth grabs Sting's bat and gets in. Sting tells her to drop it and leave, and she does drop the bat, but as he goes to try the deathlock again, she scoops it up and nails him hard and it looked like she might have caught him in the jaw. It looked like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hear the shot, too. It's very hard. Sting is out cold, but he wins by disqualification. Elizabeth retrieves a chair and puts it around Sting's arm. Luger hurls Boone out of the ring and stomps on the chair several times, then takes the bat and smacks Sting's arm several more times. Tony says that's likely injured the arm and put Sting out for quite a while. The crowd boos Luger, as probably every referee on the show and WCW security come out to get him to leave. 
Then the staff carries Sting out, holding him partially by the arm that Luger's been hitting. <laughs> Wait for a dang stretcher! <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like the crowd carries the dead hero away from like the battle. Yeah. But there's like six of them. There's not enough for like a flock of people. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. They're just holding him really poorly. Yeah. And just like supporting him entirely by that arm is like a horrible idea. If that was actually broken, <laughs> how much extra damage would you do? Oh my gosh. Yeah, right? Weird pattern, by the way, uh, that I noticed while looking up stuff for the show. Sting closes out 1998, 1999, and 2000, slight spoilers there, with injury angles. Yeah. All three years in a row. It's true. This is the only one that actually happens at Starcade. The injury angle happens before it in 1998 and 2000. Thoughts on this match? Uh, it's got a lot of good action. It's uh, the whole package and Sting. So obviously they've worked together probably more times than we've done episodes of the show. Just in the last 10 years, probably, mm-hmm. they have. So that obviously they have good chemistry together. They know each other quite well. So it's not a surprise they'd have a good match. It'd really be a surprise if they didn't at this mm-hmm. point, I would say. They had to really do something dumb to do that. Like you, I did like the obvious eventual Sting catches a swerve for once. Yeah. I do have a question, though. Cameron, the referee sees her spray him, though, right? I honestly have no idea where Boone was at that moment. There's not a ref bump or anything. No, right? Yeah. So it's not a DQ the first time she tries to attack him, I guess. Maybe he sees the silly string come out and... The fact that Sting actually predicted this thing is kind of like a divide by zero in his head, oh. and he like he like shuts down for a few moments. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the other thing I was that I really didn't think about until I after watching the second time and really reinforced me recapping it now is that okay? So he saw her betrayal coming, but then brought his a, a real bat. Yes, maybe he didn't know what that was going to happen during the whole thing, mm-hmm. and he figured that Elizabeth was just going to be like try to save face, you know, at the end of the day. He could have brought, like, a Nerf bat. It would have been hilarious. That would have been awesome. She just keeps hitting him, and, you know, he, he holds a lock while, <laughs> while, while Luger uh, taps out. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he was, like, 99% sure. The 1% was like, maybe she's not going to betray me, and I do need this bat just in case. <laughs> I will say, as good as the action is, the DQ finish hurts. Mm-hmm. It's part of a bigger story, but it's weird that Starcade is the beginning of a bigger story, and not the climax of a bigger story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Great wrestling. I enjoyed uh, the total PKG and uh, <laughs> Sting. I wasn't fully sold on the premise <laughs> from the get-go, but I, I could see that you know, Sting's trying to be helpful and, and get someone out of a bad situation. So that mm-hmm. that kind of carried me. I'm glad that they both got some great spots. The silly string was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the silly sting, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> silly sting. I didn't awesome. think of that, man. Nice. <laughs> I, I mean, I paused it right then. I just happened to, you know, like I had to go do something else, and I came back, and I was like, that's a great screenshot. You know, I just yes. happened to sit there with like the string just uh, hanging off of them. It's a good exchange and good acting on both ends. I think that they sell it real well. It's overblown and, and obvious, but I think you need to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. For the audience so they can see that, you know, he's. A little tongue-in-cheek. And the fact that I thought I was laughing and giggling when he was talking to her and uh, Package gets up and he does the elbows. And, I loved yeah. that, yeah. I thought that was, that was great. It was like, aha, I've got you. And Sting's just like, no, you don't. <laughs> great timing. It was, it was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. 
It also reminded me of in the Batman the Image series opening. He didn't mm-hmm. backfist the one guy. I didn't even look. Yeah. 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 If if he was hurt by the bat, you know, it was sold really well. If if mm-hmm. if, if he wasn't actually struck, same credit goes to when they're working the hand. Even though they probably placed it in a way that it would prevent some injury, still he didn't budge or move or mm-hmm. you know show any indication that he was conscious. He sells being conscious. Yeah, really well, yeah. Yeah. Sting acts like he is completely out. It's got to be hard to not even twitch when someone is at least in part landing on your arm. Yeah. Even the bat shots. There's got to be like at least a touch that he's feeling constantly. He has no reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Pilmanization usually gets a a rise out of you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was an interesting match. I don't really have anything negative to say about it. I don't know why they don't, they aren't kind of distinct sometimes. Yeah. That's all. That's a broader WCW question for sure. Yeah. I, I think that it was it was a good outcome for for the narrative, but you mm-hmm. know I, I would have liked to see Steen get a little more love. Yeah, and this could easily have been if it, they didn't have the whole Miss Elizabeth thing. It could have been the main event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. if they had expanded it. Yeah, thank goodness for Luger and Sting. <laughs> Even a pretty basic Sting versus Luger match is still better than everything else on the card so far. Mm. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. They use a simple match structure here. Luger beats Sting down, Sting recovers, Sting kicks Luger's butt. These guys do have more than this, but as simple as it is, the match works. The spot with Sting finally, for once in his life, realizing ahead of time that someone's going to turn on him was awesome and had me in stitches. It is hurt a little by the finish, as it doesn't make much sense, like you said. <laughs> why Sting thinks that Elizabeth won't just pick the back, back up and smack him, or why he brings it in the first place if he knows that he's got a traitor on his team, but I guess they had to get to the injury angle, but it does feel like they could have found another way to do that, even with just Sting winning. There are crowbars everywhere. Oh, that would have actually been great. Sting doesn't bring the bat, but Elizabeth finds the gold crowbar that, uh, yeah. that Robinson discarded. <laughs> Do you put find the treasure map and like start looking around for <laughs> yeah, the for it? The origin of the bat obviously is Crowsting becoming that as part of the NWO. So the idea is that he has to constantly run and fight off like four to ten or in uh, HPK math, four to a thousand, two thousand people. So the bat makes perfect sense why he's not just punting them. Now obviously at this point the bat has become iconic for him. But he's going to a one on one match with somebody and not even counting the you know she might betray you thing it's weird that you need the bat for a one-on-one match it's still yeah. he's expecting someone else to attack him maybe i don't know i it does occur to me a possible explanation for the bat okay for him still bringing that out there and that's that luger has been talking a lot in the video package as we're shown with the powers that be mm. who have a lot of henchmen so he may be thinking okay even if i've countered elizabeth's plan luger may have worked up something with the powers that be to send, you know, creative control down or something to kick my butt. So he brings the bat to deal with possible additional interference. So what you're saying is this match could have led to a La Parker run-in. Yes. And it didn't. Yes. Did that turn you on the entire match? A little bit, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> you ruined it all. <laughs> I just think it's part of the costume. That's I think all. so, too, yeah. It would have been great if it was a Nerf bat somehow. Like, yes. like you couldn't tell from like like picking it up, but <laughs> yeah, that would have made this match of the series. <laughs> yeah, 
Like it just broke and he laughed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just like Luker's tapping. <laughs> so yeah. Sting's just funny, laughing just, there. He just keeps hitting him and just like, nope. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Still, it was good to see a Sting versus Luger match again, and they put together a very fun story. Yeah. I'll copy that. This definitely woke me up a little <laughs> yeah. after the rest of the show. The, the DDP versus Flair match did did some good too, but I was like, oh my gosh, I can I can honestly, solidly declare I liked something. For sure, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obviously, as this entails, Ding um, takes time off. Obviously, it leads to a rematch down the road against Luger. And Luger's storyline basically comes... He decided he likes the arm-breaking thing so much, he does it to a bunch of people, which is all part of the Sting match, which leads to, like, a Lumberjack match. Lumberjack's in, arm in like, cast. Correct. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, that's where that's going, essentially. We cut to a video package for the Powerbomb match between Nash and Sid Vicious, featuring Nash wearing a Sid mask to make fun of him, and Sid getting angry and challenging him to find out which of them is better at the Powerbomb. It also features the first half of an immortal Sid line from the November 15th Nitro. See, Nash, you can wear any Halloween costume you want to, but you know and I know that you are only half the man that I am. He would have been fine if he just stopped there. And I have half the brain that you do. Cut to Nash and Hall at least managing to laugh heelishly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I love that line so much. That is one of the best wrestling promo bloopers of all time. <laughs> He's so intense about it. Mm-hmm. But I love it. Yeah. Oh. Was he supposed to say twice? I'm I'm guessing what he's supposed to say is something more like, and I've got half a mind to beat you up. Or something maybe. like that. I could see twice the brains that you do, maybe, but yeah. Or you are half as much. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> he just gets it all muddled and says, I've got half the brain that you do, rendering this an immortal moment. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, and obviously, they only put the you're half the band that I am part in the promo package, because why embarrass the poor guy further? But <laughs> wow. He's just so so intense about that line and he doesn't seem to realize in the moment that he's saying no. it wrong either this is great so match 11 is the millennium man sid vicious versus kevin nash in a master of the powerbomb match the referee for this match is mark johnson so the bigger than life egos of sid and nash collide ironically behind the scenes it was kevin nash who got sid vicious to return to wcw I think from playing softball, because that's usually where he goes. Yeah, generally. I believe he wrestled ECW briefly as well. He comes back, he's the Millennium Man, which I believe was also a movie with Robin Williams, isn't it? He's a robot. Bicentennial Man. Ah, oh, so close. Every 200 years. <laughs> he comes back, and he's a heel at this point. He'll win matches, but then he'll also attack people after the match and powerbomb them. And somehow this is becomes his streak he gets his own goldberg streak counting the after the match attacks as wins for his streak the number has changed all the time Mm -hmm. rebounding from the loss of said streak in air quotes of course he had to go after kevin nash 
So their predilection for power bombs leads to the stipulation of the match. To win this match, you have to power bomb the other wrestler. That's the only way to win this match. Clear on that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No pinfalls, no submissions, no disqualifications, no countouts. You can only win by doing a power bomb to your opponent. If this match ever made a return and you're fighting Billy Kidman, do you just lose via forfeit? Yes. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Vicious enters first, followed by Nash. NWO Wolfpack theme count one. Oh, now I guess it's just Nash's theme, since the Wolfpack is no more. You still hate it, though. Yes. <laughs> Nash holds the title, but it's not on the line. The ref shows Vicious anyway, I guess thinking that Vicious likes shiny objects or something. Ooh, pretty. <laughs> Nash controls, missing a punch by a mile and getting Vicious in the corner for knee strikes, oddly swinging his leg back and forth several times before one of them. Hudson tells us this is one of three main events tonight. <sighs> Vicious completely fails to sell Nash's strikes and mistakes a clothesline spot for a simultaneous clothesline spot, but Nash takes him down anyway, then goes for a pin as the ref counts two. Uh, guys, powerbomb match? <laughs> Maybe he thought that was close enough to powerbomb that it should count halfway? No. no. So you can get a pin. Vicious fights back and goes for his Millennium Bomb, but Nash punches him in the crotch. Vicious can sell that, at least, as he rolls out. Somehow he's gotten a cut on his back, I couldn't tell when. He and Nash brawl outside, and Nash tries the jackknife powerbomb, but Vicious awkwardly pushes him away and mostly misses a kick that Nash generously sells. Vicious works the back with the apron, barricade, and chair, so there actually is a story to this, at least. Back in, Vicious hits a clothesline and an honestly terrific leg drop. Vicious tries to get the crowd to chant, Power Bomb! Power Bomb! They do not. <laughs> now, if they had chanted enough, would he have won the match? Yes. Okay. Nash uses an eye poke, but Vicious reverses a whip and sends Nash right into Johnson, who gets knocked loopy and falls to his knees, trying to act dazed. Vicious tries the Millennium Bomb, and can barely lift Nash for it, dangling him precariously headfirst over the mat, before managing to heft him just enough to finish the move. It's about as terrifying as the Medusa Courageous spot earlier. Johnson is determinedly, dazedly, facing the wrong way, so he doesn't see. Vicious tries to get him to turn, and Johnson clearly consciously fights it. Just act like you passed out entirely and none of this would be a problem. <laughs> Jeff Jarrett runs in, clocks Vicious with his guitar, and hustles about cleaning up debris before waking Nash. Nash, very slowly, tries twice to powerbomb Vicious, but his back is owie, so he can't. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. So he goes over to Johnson. <laughs> Can't believe I'm about to say this. You are. Go for it. And tells him that he powerbombed Vicious. He pantomimes it, too. Though. Yeah, yeah, he pantomimes a powerbomb. <laughs> and it works! Johnson raises Nash's hand in victory. NWO Wolfpack theme count, two. <laughs> Tony and Hudson are aghast and won't declare Nash master of the powerbomb, so Heenan does. <laughs> Sid just leaves. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? For what it's worth, I... I absolutely won't deny that Sid has issues selling, because I mean it's Sid. I'm, yeah, he's not the he's not Malenko, in any sort of meditation. I do like that there is actual psychology and a story to the match, which going into this match, to your I knew the ridiculous finish is famously bad, but I never actually seen the match. So I was surprised how much flow there was up until it abruptly just stops 
for all the navel gazing uh, with the referee and everything. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if they had done something less stupid, like having Nash actually do a power bomb, you could have him be assisted by Jared to a power bomb. Mm-hmm. First off, there's no DQ as far as I know. Right. Yeah. So Jared didn't even need to clean up the debris. Well, he cleans up the debris, I think, so that the ref will buy that Nash did a powerbomb and not think I, it was a guitar shot. I don't know if he's ahead of that plan. I think, I feel like the stupid tell the ref thing is is plan C, or D, or E, or F, or whatever, wherever he's at at this yeah, point. Yeah, true. I don't think, from the get-go, his plan is, okay, I'm not going to do a powerbomb. I'm going to lie the ref. That's a good point, that. yeah, because he tries to do a powerbomb a couple times after yeah. that. Good point, yeah. Never mind. I, tr- I dreamed up a way that it made sense. Sorry. He could have, like, jumped on the mat so it sounded like he did it. Yeah. Or propped him up and held him, like, at the end of the pose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He could try the first one not working. Jeff Jarrett does the, that back half of the lift to get him over and mm-hmm. the powerbomb while the ref's up. Or do the corner powerbomb. Right. The, the, like, out of the turnbuckle one yeah mm-hmm. now if you knock him out that's you'd have to set that up more though yeah i just mean like he could have jared help him lift no him up yeah for then, sure yeah yeah Man. <laughs> it's so stupid it is it's really really dumb <laughs> yeah i wrote um stupidly long rough bump plus stupid if creative finish is a one-two punch of bad <laughs> yes i could think of a dozen ways less stupid than lie to the ref and the ref never bothers to check the tape because like yes, rush for replay. Well, and, and believes. I mean, this is this is the thing that gets me the most about this is the rule in wrestling basically is if the ref doesn't see it, it didn't happen. Yeah, that's that's how it always works. That's what enables heels to function. They can smack a guy with a chair or brass knucks or what have you behind the ref's back. If the ref doesn't see it happen, it doesn't matter how loud the chair shot was and how he heard the sound of metal collided, colliding with flesh. Mm-hmm. It did not happen. They don't hear that. But this is the one case where someone's like, yes, referee, this occurred. <laughs> and, yeah. and the ref believes him. And in this case, it didn't happen. <laughs> so, like, what? Yeah. I will say there's one exemption which doesn't, okay, doesn't make this not stupid. But the only exemption to what you're talking about, the ref must see it to happen, is heels tagging their Fake, own hand. the tag. Fair enough. Okay. So because, so because Nash is a heel, the referees, uh, I believe, heels on fake tags sense triggers, and that's yeah. why this works. Okay. <laughs> he's, the referee's injured. He doesn't want to get injured again. <laughs> he's, he's, he's out of it. So he's like, I'm done with this match. It's just so, so stupid. Is it original, though? It is original, yes. I will give you that. I can't think of another match that has that finish. No one else was stupid enough to do this. Yeah. So you're saying this like has merit? No. <laughs> like, okay. Oh my gosh. I don't even know if I need to comment on this. <laughs> <laughs> you totally do. You always expect someone to do a specific move to finish. Like, you can't have Diamond Dallas Page end on like a stunner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, his his claim to fame is he can do the diamond cutter from any angle or whatever, you know, yeah. and make it unique. Interesting things happened in this match, but the one thing that should have been interesting is who got the first powerbomb. And like you said, it it seems a little disjointed in that they're trying to pin each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's weird that's a bio. 
I think that they might have just missed a spot or something, and that's, yeah. and that's how they, they, just, they go on autopilot at a certain point, and you just like, oh, I knocked him down, I'll go for a pin. Yeah. What's weird to me is the ref also goes on autopilot. Yeah, the ref, well, normally like, the ref would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> it, would, it would have been funny if he actually finished that, and he's like, no. <laughs> yeah. He's like, what? no, you need to do it. Oh, crap, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, if you pin him, do you, do you get a, a, like a, a free power bomb? <laughs> there you go. Oh. You have to stand there and let me do it. Let's not make this more complicated. It's like a, it's like a penalty kick, right? Yeah. Yeah. Penalty bomb. <laughs> Soccer can be so much more exciting. Oh my god. I am more interested in making this soft drink or this this energy drink than yes. I am. <laughs> this thing. It could have been pretty amazing and it it just wasn't and it might be one of the better endings of the night. <laughs> <laughs> not one of the better ones, but certainly better than some. Okay. Not to keep fancy booking this, but you could easily do something where Nash on the outside sits on the apron, yelling at uh, Jeff Jarrett to run in there, and Kevin Nash grabs him off the apron and power bombs. Him. Yeah, there's loads of ways you could work it, work out Nash being able to do a power bomb despite his back being owie. They did not have to actually do this. Yeah, yeah, slow and awful. Sid is utterly incapable of selling and has no offense beyond clubbing and kind of odd kicks. Nash can't drag an interesting fight out of Sid and should be glad that he lived through the match after a second terrifying powerbomb tonight. And the ending, oh man. <laughs> it's so ridiculously stupid, it almost turns around and becomes awesome. Almost. The terrible acting by ref Mark Johnson, Jarrett cleaning the ring after his guitar shop for like the only time in his career, and Nash just telling the referee that he won. One of the worst match ending ideas ever. They should have made this Nash's gimmick, convincing refs that he won in all kinds of matches. Oh yeah, he totally submitted when you looked away. <laughs> what, don't you remember? You counted three on a pinfall a, a second ago. <laughs> Come on, I threw all those guys out while your back was turned. Who are you going to believe, me or them? <laughs> oh, but seriously, what a terrible match and terrible ending. <laughs> in that ending, there is like two people in the crowd that are like, Doing the wolf pack side. Yeah. yeah, they're doing the wolf pack side. And everyone else is looking away, <laughs> looking down. Boo. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> no one is happy with that ending. The only credit I will give is after the match, Nash continues trying to convince the crowd. Yeah, you saw me do a power bomb, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, oh. Yeah. I feel weird being in a place where I'm not saying that Sid is really great in this match, but I feel weird to the point where I'm. I'm actually less bothered by the match than Bob is about this, but go figure, it happens. There's just a lot of little things about this match that already go kind of wrong, yeah. and then you throw the horrible ending on top of it, and it's just like, what? But I do give him credit for the really good leg drop. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That was good. So let it not be said that I have not complimented Sid Vicious. <laughs> Surprisingly, coming out of losing this apparently super important match, Sid gets put in position to town for the world title in January. <laughs> okay. But uh, complications arise in that. Someone in the crowd has the nerve to hold up a WWF sucks sign after that match. Timing, dude. <laughs> we cut backstage. Chris Benoit is with Mike Tenay. Tenay lays out Benoit's open challenge. Benoit says he doesn't know who his opponent's going to be, but whoever it is will go through the Crippler and find out what Silent But Violent is all about. 
If Benoit doesn't have new information to give, why are we talking to him again? Also, can I just note that silent but violent is a really weird catchphrase? I mean, first you're verbally describing yourself as silent, which is kind of strange. Well, during the match. (laughs) And second, do you really want your catchphrase to remind people of how they describe a particularly nasty fart? (laughs) I mean, he would there go with toothless aggression, so take your pick. Yeah, yeah. Neither's really good, is it? Yeah. The shirt I have, and yes, I own a Crispin Ma shirt. I just never wear it in public for obvious reasons. Yes. Is like something like snap or tap or something like that about dismissional. So yeah. yeah. They never quite were great with giving him. No. I don't I honestly don't hate the silent but violent thing as much. It it feels like a catchphrase just not hundred percent thought out. Mm-hmm. I think he just tries new ones all the time and sees what sticks. Yeah. None of them really do. Although I do have to note, silent but violent, he was using back in, like, 96 as well. Ah. It was not particularly good then, either. <laughs> he never quite sounds like he buys it, either, I mm. think is the thing. He always says it and seems to feel a little awkward about well, it. Well, because talking is not natural for him, yeah, obviously. because he's silent, yes. Yeah. Okay, I get you. Our 12th match is Chris Benoit versus whoever the heck comes out in a ladder match for Benoit's, or I guess for the vacant, United States heavyweight title. Referee for this match is Mickey J. Come on, Brian Knobs. <laughs> uh, the build to this is that Scott Hall won the U.S. title on Nitro in a ladder match. A surprisingly stacked ladder match, too. I forget the exact thing. It's him and Goldberg and Bret Hart and somebody else. You're like, you'd think there'd be like a really famous match. It's just not that interesting, hmm. unfortunately. But yeah, it ends on Nitro and not in pay-per-view. It probably didn't help. But yeah, so they're setting up the story that he's calling himself the master of the ladder match. Going off WrestleMania 10 and SummerSlam, you know, and the other company. Yes. To their credit, they're really famous, so... Right, right. Also, the I think the previous ladder match he had before this, he lost. The Goldberg one, he has fallen Stark, and I'm pretty sure he loses. Mm-hmm. So it's an iffy thing, but he's also a heel. As we noted, he was set to defend it, but is injured. I'm a little confused what the extent of his injury is, but it's enough that they don't book him on this show. Mm-hmm. So this is a master of the ladder match, ladder match, which of course means that you have to smack someone with a ladder to win. Yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Like the master of the <laughs> Just <match>. kidding. <laughs> Benoit's pyro seems oddly timed, going off well before he actually comes out on stage. There's a ladder in the entrance ramp, so Benoit has to kind of awkwardly walk around it. The U.S. title is suspended above the ring. This is really our first ladder match, isn't it? Yeah. That's, Wow. <laughs> Jarrett's music hits, revealing that despite having a match earlier in the night, Jeff Jarrett will be Benoit's opponent. He comes out in wrestling gear this time. Jarrett grabs a microphone and climbs up on the ladder, and asks for his music to be cut. I couldn't place which announcer it is, as it's quiet, but one of them heartily agrees. (laughs) Think it's Hudson, but I'm not sure. Jarrett calls Benoit slap nuts. (sighs) He says that he's already kicked one butt tonight, so he might as well make it two. When he's done, the crippler will be crippled. It's just Jared accepting the match. Let's move on and never speak of his favorite word again. As long as he's we're sure with it all the time. Yes. Jared and Benoit brawl by the ladder, and Jared flees into the ring. Inside, Jared tries to use agility to keep ahead of Benoit, but Benoit lands a clothesline, backbreaker, and chops, and finally lifts Jared up top for a superplex. This early? Wow. <laughs> Jared is out, and Benoit retrieves the ladder. But Jarrett wakes up and knocks Benoit off the apron, and baseball slides into the ladder to send it into Benoit hard. 
Then, with the ladder dangling over the apron, he drops Benoit onto it. Ow! Everyone in the ladder back in, and Jarrett tries to send Benoit into the ladder in the corner, but Benoit reverses and Jarrett eats ladder. Benoit is bleeding. Benoit climbs, but Jarrett drops him off the ladder crotch first onto the top rope, then drops the ladder on Benoit. They trade off smacking each other into the ladder, and Jarrett props it in the corner and tries to crotch Benoit through the rungs. Benoit's foot is in the way, and Tony covers saying that he managed to defend himself. But Jarrett tangles Benoit's legs around the ladder anyway, then grabs the ladder and pushes off the ropes, dumping Benoit over with the ladder landing on top. Amazing spot there. Is that a Russian ladder sweep? I guess, yeah, that's probably what you should call it. Yeah. <laughs> Jarrett tries to climb for the belt, but Benoit interrupts and gets him in a tree of woe hanging from the ladder for some punches. The ladder shakes a lot, and it's very scary to watch. Benoit climbs the other side, but Jarrett shakes the ladder and tips it over, dumping both of them. Benoit lets go a fraction of a second before the ladder would have closed on his hands. <sighs> that was freaking me out watching that. Yeah, yeah. The ladder lands on Jarrett. They both prop up the ladder and use it to help them stand and climb. Jarrett wins a brawl on top and Benoit falls, but they trade off climbing and dumping each other off onto the ropes. Benoit climbs, but Jarrett hits a top rope dropkick to the ladder, and it goes right out from under Benoit, sending him to the mat hard. That was amazing. Jarrett tries to keep Benoit down, but Benoit rolls under a clothesline and the ladder and dropkicks it into Jarrett, then climbs to stand up top. He could easily take the belt down, but instead he does the swan dive headbutt from the top of the ladder onto Jarrett. Air Canada, they're calling that. <sighs> Jarrett is out cold, and Benoit climbs the ladder again to take the belt down for the win. The crowd cheers Benoit's victory as Hudson calls it a match of the year candidate. Thoughts on this one? Uh, I thought it was a really strong match. I mean... I'm not the biggest Jeff Jarrett fan, but obviously these two had a match previously, which despite the uh, chicanery, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, the weird double knockout thing they did, the match itself was actually really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that they have good chemistry together. I like that the latter spots were pretty creative. Same time, they weren't really complicated, Mm-mm. as much sense as that makes. In more modern match, especially as they became yearly or twice yearly events, they kept having to escalate what you could do and it turned into like stacking four of them in some weird pattern and falling in like sequence. Yeah. It looks cool, but it takes so long. Kayfabe kind of doesn't really hold up. Yeah. There's like no setup time in this one. It's constantly moving. Right. My point is they don't make the, the bot so complicated that you question the reality. Right. Of them. Yeah. Yeah. All of them make sense, which is nice. Mm-hmm. For the most part, all the moves are pretty hard hitting, but you can tell they're so professional about this that, they do them as safely as possible. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the bit where he's dropping ladders of hanging off the ring apron, which I really wish he could do in the games, by the way. Yes. Physics is not allowed that to happen, unfortunately. There's a lot of ways that could be a lot worse. He takes a night as flat a surface as he can when he takes that bump. Mm-hmm. I can see you falling too far forward in your head. There's a lot of ways you could mess it up. And rolling off could be bad as well. So they do these spots that look really impactful, and I'm sure did not feel good. But they do it in a way that for the most part, they avoid any real serious injury that could be happening. I appreciate that as well. Mm-hmm. They aren't just trying to make a crazy spot and hope they all survive. They're yeah. making themselves first. They're doing dumping each other off of ladders as safely as you could possibly do exactly, dumping each other yes. off of ladders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that was really good. Um, especially coming off the fact that 
it seems like the day of they decided Scott Hall was too injured to compete, mm-hmm. uh, and they made this all up. I don't know. Part of me preferred someone else got the spotlight, given that Jeff Jarrett already got to be in a match and win, and win the one match form. I wouldn't take him with this match, I don't think, but I also don't know who you would have put in against mm-hmm. Dustin. Smiley. <laughs> Smiley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's just that if they had really had such short notice, maybe they're just like, okay, Jarrett has really good chemistry with Benoit. They can do something this fast. Yeah. It may be a, a necessity thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of matches they've come out of Canada. So I'm curious if Benoit had done any number of them beforehand, maybe that's the reason why they felt safe putting him with originally Scott Hall, who obviously done a few of them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if he's done these before, but I feel like he must have. Yeah, I'm almost certain he's got to have done Pressing it. Pressing Calgary yeah. like that, yeah. yeah. It was a really amazing match. Um, I, I usually am not uh, a fan of a lot of matches. I've seen a few others. They're usually really boring. This was anything but... Like Al said, that there's, you know, you get to stack multiple things like dominoes to, to do it. And it, and it builds some anticipation, but the whole setup thing is kind of overwrought and uh, loses some effect. Quick transitions. I like that they had a lot of back and forth in this. I still can see Jarrett kicking the ladder out from beneath mm-hmm. Benoit pretty vividly. He, he did a nice jump and, and, you know, the camera angle was, was perfect on that. It looked like he had a lot more air time than he actually did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't tell from it, but you know he probably jumped quite a, <laughs> as high as yeah. he could. Jared Jared is actually very good at drop kicks. I found over his career oh, yeah. of of any kind, so he's a good guy to do this. Yeah, and and that was a, a nice thing. I in as much as one can enjoy things, I like that they do the thing where they both climb up the ladder at the same time, and they just basically just duel each other. I don't know if it was sponsored by Werner or they didn't have enough product placement and everything, but I would like to know what can handle that kind of. <laughs> Uh, abuse. <laughs> yeah, a durable ladder. Because a lot of the ones on later shows will be like, they take like three hits and they're bent every which way. They they got a quality ladder for it this did, one. Yeah. yeah. I know that seems a little odd, but it was very impactful in the fact that there is this is the first one we see any blood and we've already seen brass knuckles and mm-hmm. cowbells and, and everything else. And I suspect with Benoit that was an accident in this yeah. one. I think he does like take the ladder hard. My guess is when Jarrett kicks the ladder at him. That's yeah, probably when it hits. I mean, we did have the the back cut earlier. You know, there's some accidents here and there, but I think it actually added to the match. Mm-hmm. I think the narrative in the very beginning of the show had me anticipating some of this and not knowing who it was. You know, I think even if it was wasn't Jarrett and they didn't do as good of a performance, it already set the expectation that I would enjoy it. So, mm-hmm. great setup, great outcome. Uh, I like that they. Did a little uh, service to the fans, and just instead of just outright winning, he's like <laughs> the the Canadian uh, Airlines or whatever they call it. What was it? Air Canada. Air Canada. It was it was a decent match. It was a great match, actually, and uh, probably one of the better ma- ladder matches I've seen. Yeah. Head and shoulders above every other match on the show so far, and not just because they were standing on lat- on a ladder. I got it. <laughs> they put together a fun, creative, stunt-filled match here. I like that even though they kept moving quickly, they'd get wobblier on their feet as the match went on, and use the ladder to help them stand up, acknowledging the damage being done without letting it slow the match down. I didn't see any cracks in the match story. It felt like this was always supposed to be Benoit versus Jarrett. Impressive work there. 
the ending. Okay, obviously, it's uncomfortable seeing Benoit do headbutts off the top of a ladder because spots like that contribute to how his story ends. Yeah. But in a broader sense, I never quite got when wrestlers are on top and decide to jump off instead of grabbing the belt. It's just like, just take the belt down first, then do your diving move still if you want to, right? I mean, win the match first. So usually that's done, not to excuse it, but it's usually done when you want them to do a spot, but they're also not booked to win it. That's almost always how it goes. But Benoit is winning the match oh, anyway. Yeah, no. He could easily grab the belt and hold it in his hands while he does the swan dive headbutt, which, one, would make more sense, and two, would look awesome. No, absolutely. And you'd only have to climb it once. Yeah, that as well. Other than that, terrific match. Absolutely terrific match. This feels like a fight. Yeah. It feels like them trying everything they can to take each other down, but keeping things moving constantly, doing you know, really cool moves, but nothing that looks unrealistic. Yeah. It all makes sense and comes together really well. Excellent match. Yeah, it's interesting to look back at this match, too, because ladder matches started as one-on-one affairs, whether in Calgary or uh, Mid-South and other territories did it as well. But they quickly turned into multi-man matches. Mm-hmm. Mostly, like, coming right in 2000, 2001, the Hardy Boys, the Christian, the Boys, all that stuff. It weird turned from being singles matches to being big group, chaotic um, fights and, you know, stunt shows. So when they actually started doing single live matches again, people were like, wait, you can do single ones? <laughs> because they had so used to the breakneck pace of the multi-man ladder matches, you could do, you trade people out. You do bigger spots, and then you stay down longer, but more people are fighting. Right. So when people like, I've seen an edge in 2006, I believe, is the year on that. People are like, wait, how is that going to work? There's only two of you. Who's going to trade out after a big move? But obviously that match is really good, too. So it's important to remember these matches. I know, obviously, people think of WrestleMania 10 and, to a lesser extent, the SummerSlam match, because that went more bocce. But I think people overlook these kind of matches overall because of TLC mm-hmm. and TLC yeah. 2. And, and Money in the Bank, obviously, being an annual thing. It's, we're taking that. The singles ones, I think I actually I prefer strongly because you just you get less of that downtime. Yeah. Because they're not trying to set up all these absolutely mm-hmm. insane stunts. They're just trying to have a match. Yeah, yeah And the two guys seem to be better about constantly having a story yeah. than, like, you know, a hundred guys. <laughs> I think you can do multi-man live matches and make them good, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's trickier. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Jeff Jarrett still attached to the little powers of the B angle. So what happens is, the very next night in Nitro, he's given a rematch against Benoit for the title which is also a ladder match. So, huh. I'm glad you paid to watch this ladder match yesterday. We'll do it again. That's weird. Come on! I know. And they wonder why pay-per-view numbers are down when they just repeat matches. Yet. Now, here's the wrinkle. They have a reason, I guess, for doing it again, but it's still stupid. It's a shorter match as well. So they're fighting a Nitro. Ultimately, Benoit gets Jared down. They make sure to build up to kind of climb the ladder instead of actually doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's all about nine people on the ladder and fighting. So Benoit's got Jared down. He's about to climb the ladder and the rungs break off. So the idea is that they put a fake ladder out when designed to break. Both sides should also do this. So while he's distracted, he gets hit with a guitar shot. Jared brings out a different ladder, which is actually a real one, and then wins the US title. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. This match is completely uh, race to the next day. Don't you wait till January. Well, 
At least it was good while it lasted. <laughs> uh, speaking of January... Holy the- crap. No, seriously. <laughs> holy crap. That's so dumb. I mean, I actually kind of like the idea of the fake ladder. I'll- yeah. That's, that's kind of fun. But the next day... Yeah. You don't let him have... Like, do it on the next pay-per-view. I know. I, I'm not disagreeing. Oh, my gosh. So, speaking of the January show, um, which we'll talk a lot about without talking too much into it, because we're going to cover it at some point in the future. Between then and now, a rematch is obviously set between Benoit and Jarrett. It's supposed to be a bunch of matches, actually. Triple Threat Theater, they call it. Mm-hmm. Actual, like a cage and stuff like that. Fortunately, Jeff Jarrett is injured with what will become a very the common theme of this time, a concussion. Mm-hmm. So he vacates the title before the January show. So we get a title change the next night and also the January vacation. Wow. People wonder why the Vicar titles didn't get the prestige they used to have. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, sorry I ruined the match for you. Uh, no, it didn't ruin the match. No, I know, it's I still know. awesome. But I yeah, know. it is one of those, like you said last time, John, It's uh, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be saying that again later. We cut to another video package, this one covering Bret Hart winning the vacant world title in a tournament by beating, of all people, Chris Benoit. And the build to our Hart versus Goldberg world title match tonight. There's a very nice, subtle bit in the midst of this, as Hart is giving his best there is, best there was, and best there ever will be line in the promo, in the, in the video package. He indicates Goldberg when he says, the best there was. Yes, I know that too. Very, very nice, subtle hinting there. The video gave a better sense of the narrative than any of the others tonight, I think. For sure. Yeah. It's just a more straightforward story overall, I think, too, yeah. which helps. We go backstage to Mike Tanay, who's with Bret Hart. Tanay says this is the moment they've been waiting for. Hart says he's a man of his word, and he said that Goldberg is going to lose. He wants to prove that he's the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, whether Goldberg likes it or not. Another short promo here. It's fine, but like most of the others, it added nothing in particular. If you're going to have promos, have promos, not sound bites. Package is good. You definitely don't need the sound bite afterwards. Just, I would just go right to it. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. So our final match, the 13th match on this show... The lucky one. Lucky number 13. Yeah. Lucky number 13, yeah. <laughs> is Goldberg versus Brett Hitman Hart in a no-disqualification match for Hart's WCW World Heavyweight title. The referee is Billy Silverman. Going into the World Title Tournament, which obviously Bret Hart wins as part of the story, the first round match, he actually ends up fighting Goldberg. Oh, interesting. But they add a little extra wrinkle, which is kind of confusing. So, it's a tournament to determine the new world champion. Goldberg is U.S. champion at the time. They decide the U.S. title will be on the line during this world title tournament match. Okay. So, he loses U.S. title to Bret Hart as part of the build to this as well. Okay. And Bret loses it, but they'll cover that. It's, it's weird. I don't know why. It's, that's just a random thing stuck in there. Okay. They make sure he loses the title while also losing his world title shot in the process. Very strange. Man, bad night for Goldberg. Yeah. They have Goldberg and Bret Hart. Sure, they work together by winning the tag title, but then lose them the next week as well. But yeah, it's just, it's like you said, Bill, the best of what is, best of what is, best of what will be. Michael Buffer does the introductions and says, this is the last Starcade of the 20th century. 
It is not. <laughs> that would be Starcade 2000 next year. Maybe Buffer was just honestly wondering if WCW would make it to another one, though. Nice blue tux he's got. Oddly, he ends his intros with, We are ready to rumble, instead of the usual, Let's get ready to rumble, which the announcers even note. Yeah. Hart comes out with yet more generic rock instead of his knockoff WWF theme. Goldberg still thankfully has his usual theme and awesome full entrance with the march from the locker room. No autographs this time, though. Some fans in the crowd hold up Goldberg letters in sparkling silver. You were so close. <laughs> still shiny. Maybe there's something I don't know of called a Berg, which is somehow silver, and that's what they're thinking of? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Really, really shoddy line from Hudson. Oh, God. Yeah. He says that nothing could make up for the loss of Brett's brother, Owen, who died in an accident at WWF's Over the Edge 1999 that May. But ending the year as world champion could go a long way. Oof. Don't incorporate someone's actual death into your wrestling story. Yeah. That's, go, go, go so to hell. For that. Yeah, that was awful. Wow. Brett kisses the title and hands it over to ref Billy Silverman. Tony notes that this is inexplicably a no disqualification match. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Hart and Goldberg shake hands, and we're off. Goldberg proves the stronger on initial lockups, but Hart uses leverage to take him down, and the announcers nicely build up this being about Goldberg's pure athletic ability versus Hart's technique. Goldberg overpowers Hart with a military press and big clotheslines, but Hart counters the rolling ankle lock into a sharpshooter attempt, only for Goldberg to quickly kick free before it's locked in. That was cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hart gets the ropes to prevent further holds, even though this is no DQ, and rolls out over the bottom rope. They brawl outside, and Hart tries to whip Goldberg into the barricades, but Silverman, who had a good position clear of the fight, suddenly runs in the way for no reason and gets knocked flat. Maybe he saw a squirrel. Ooh, what's that? Ah! Ref bump number one. Ding. Hart and Goldberg brawl by the announce table as Charles Robinson replaces Silverman. Goldberg wins the brawl with some barricade slams. Back in, Goldberg hits a big boot and builds to a suplex takeover, but Robinson stands right in the way, so Hart slams into him for ref bump two. I think what happened is maybe, maybe poor Charles Robinson, he was like getting a lay of the land and saw... Is that a silver Goldberg? Like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Dang. Goldberg tries a spear in the corner, but Hart dodges and Goldberg eats turnbuckle. Hart rolls out, flips the stairs out of his way, and puts on a suspended ring post figure four leg lock. But one of Goldberg's legs slips free, and Hart hits the outside mats pretty hard. Johnny Boone is our third referee. Hart lets go, and Goldberg slumps outside the ring. The crowd chants loudly for Goldberg, but he's struggling to stand. Back in, Hart works the leg, even wrapping it around the ropes for a leg lock. Boone counts, but can't DQ Hart, although Tony says he can refuse to declare a winner while they're in the ropes. Hart figure four leg lock gets a one count, but Goldberg turns it over, and Hart grabs the ropes to break. We get a quiet Goldberg sucks chant from some fans, but much louder cheers as Goldberg tries to fight back. Hart stops that with leg kicks and works the leg some more. Goldberg finally gets Hart by the throat and lands punches, but Boone yells at him despite this being no DQ, distracting him. Hart kicks free, but Boone gets in the way as Hart pulls back for a punch and gets clocked. <laughs> Whoops, there goes another referee bump. 
Rough bump three. <laughs> Ding. Noticing a pattern. <laughs> yes. Goldberg reverses a heart whip and sidekicks Hart hard in the face. Hart goes down, clutching his head. When he makes it to his feet, Goldberg spears him. Roddy Piper very slowly walks down the entrance ramp, wearing a referee shirt and a downhearted expression. Goldberg yells to him to walk faster, but Hart recovers and chop blocks Goldberg, then goes for the sharpshooter as Piper enters the ring. Before it's even locked in, Piper lazily signals for the bell, awarding the match to Hart by submission, because we didn't get enough Montreal Screwdrop references back in 1997. <sighs> Hart releases Goldberg instantly and questions Piper. Goldberg looks on in disbelief, and Hart motions that he has no idea what's going on. Piper grabs the big gold belt and walks away as Hart follows. Hart catches up and yells at him, but Piper just shoves the belt into his hands and walks backstage. Hart and Goldberg both look stunned. So this match is uh, historically important for certain reasons, but let's discuss the match as a match first. Thoughts on it? Um, I thought it was pretty strong. Obviously, it's got a quite a big challenge to follow we just got. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like the stories you laid out that it's they're trying to push the idea that Goldberg is much stronger, the youth factor as well, and Bret Hart is obviously more technically sound. I like that as the match goes through, to make sure that Goldberg does some technical stuff to actually mm-hmm. get out of Bret Hart's spots. At the same time, Bret Hart has to be more physical to take Goldberg down for his submission holes and stuff to work. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice counterbalance of the two ideas. They like adapt to each other. Exactly. Yeah. It was making me think a little bit of like Flair Luger matches. Yeah, I can see that. Just with less outright cheating. Right. <laughs> the story of the match itself was fine. The action's really good. The problem is just there's so many ref bumps. Yes. And they're so silly. <laughs> I have oh been, I have back to the last one for the ref to like faint from the idea of the punch coming near him. Yeah. Or just like he, he just runs and throws himself out of the ring just preemptively. Like, hold on. Ah! Yeah. I know it's coming. It's it's so goofy and this and this is so it might have made sense in the cartoonish like hardcore thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like how they keep knocking ref down with like trash can or something. Yes. That would kind of make sense and it would fit the theme of it. But if this it is just it's a main event match, so we have to have ref bumps, apparently. Mm-hmm. While I was watching this, I kept on waiting for like a little thing come achievement unlocked, like <laughs> z- z- zebra speed bump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a bit distracting, but the actual match itself um, is fine. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to find a bad Bret Hart match, even at this point when his heart is mostly, no pun intended, mostly not in wrestling as much as he speaks, especially mm-hmm. some of it's out of Montreal to begin with, and obviously post-99, he's at Bob's stuff, as we know. Yeah, yeah. But he, he can still clearly deliver when they give him something to work with, and Goldberg, someone he clearly wanted to work with and wanted to have a big match with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it works. Great performances by uh, both superstars. I sometimes forget how good Brett is, mm-hmm. and it's nice to to see that he can kind of still kind of overpower Goldberg in small in small ways. Mm-hmm. And Goldberg does a really good job of working with him. There's good chemistry, but do refs not recover? Like, Apparently not in this match. I swear, there's one point where like one of them like hits the ground and. As he's hitting the ground, like in the background, you can see another ref moving in. The third guy, Boone, is up in the ring before they even like announce it. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's like the the autopilot from 
airplane. It's yeah. Like a, there's a little Pez dispenser that shoots them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or they live underneath the, uh, the ring like the Morlocks they are. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they do the same thing Midnight does. They should have put out the lights in the... That, oh, that would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or I'll have Midnight be a ref. That would have been there great, you too. You know, I didn't see where Goldberg actually got hurt. Where Goldberg got hmm? hurt? Yeah, he had, like, blood on his head. Oh, um, okay. That's from... That's generally from him headbutting his door during his entrance. Oh. At, at the start of his entrance, you always hear this boom sound uh, that is Goldberg headbutting his door. That can't be good for you. It's his, like, psyching, my, psyching myself up thing. No, I, I get guess. it. I just... Sandman would do that as well. He would drink beer and it would smash in his head. Yeah. yeah. I thought I just missed something. And, and actually, I was very surprised by Goldberg's kick <laughs> towards the end. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that at all. Going into this, I know it's different when you're watching on a recording and everything. You know, you're not doing pre-preview and you're not there. But when we're at two hours and 22 minutes and the final match is only 20 minutes long, I get a little worried (laughs) (laughs) that something's going to happen. Or or maybe it'll just be so amazing, you know, that I'm like, they're going to have a weird wrap-up. This is one of the very few times that I'm not really a fan of Roddy Piper. <laughs> of Roddy Piper, yeah. Yeah, I, d- I don't know if he's just going to bat for Brett. Piper came back around Mayhem. They've done this thing where he's sort of forced to do what the powers be, do a little sign referee match, and he'll make them mad, and they'll, get, they'll attack him. But So the idea is he's there, and he has to do stuff he doesn't like. So he looks like, oh, God. They, they, they've t- yeah, they've clearly told him something in the back as his idea. And so he knows what he has to, what he has to do, quote-unquote. So that's why he comes out there, he's not in a hurry to do it, and he's not happy about it. Okay. But I said they covered that a little more, but that's, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I did get that. I didn't, you know, I didn't see it as malicious or whatever, but like, oh, he just, sure, like, yeah. clearly was like... <sighs> but they should have put a little bit of that in the, in the video mm-hmm. or something. I suppose. But... I don't get when you have a business where you're running into things. You you don't push the plane into a dive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you at least attempt to pull up. And the past arcades, it's just been whatever. If you had learned something, this is you at least need to end on the high note. Even if it's going to piss off some fans, at least there has to be a definitive non-controversial cut and dry finish yeah Yeah. that's all you need to know and we've had three years in a row where we haven't gotten that Mm -hmm. yeah there's a come on mindset in wcw it's not even just a russo thing that pay-per-views are good obviously but pay-per-views are designed to sell tv because ratings are the most important thing in the world so you want to build tv up not use tv to build pay-per-view yeah, which is the opposite philosophy that has driven wrestling for most of its history yeah. in, in the pay-per-view era anyway, and generally drives the WWF, Yes, which may be why the WWF is being much more successful at this point in pay-per-view yeah. realm. And so, it's still around. Yeah, Don't you get more money initially? You get like, a lot of money from pay-per-views, <laughs> yes. So why would you just shoot yourself in the foot for a more steady income stream? Because it's so important to beat the WWF in the ratings. It's, it's pride, John. It's, it's pride and honor and, and things like that. And men fighting like men. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it makes no sense. And but yeah, that, that's part of why they do this. 
Not an excuse, it's just a fact, sadly. Yeah, Hart and Goldberg put on a good match with an interesting story of Goldberg's raw power and athleticism slowly being overcome by Hart's ring awareness and technique, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. It keeps up the feeling of mutual respect, also, even as things get more heated, which is a tough balancing act. For sure. There's a few sloppy spots, and I would have liked maybe a bit more sense of a back and forth. There's clear sections of control for each with really obvious pivot points. But it's an enjoyable match. The insane amount of ref bumps and replacements is bonkers. Mm -hmm. But for me, it didn't really hurt things that much. It's just a couple small points in the match, and they work well around it. The ending does hurt things. It's such an unceremonious end to the match. It feels like we build and build and build and then just stop. Yeah. A good match with a seriously disappointing ending. Though I'll admit it is at least a little intriguing from a story's perspective. Question for you guys. Why did this need to be no DQ? Uh, like every single ref yeah. bump is clearly accidental. Sure. And I can't recall any points where anyone failed to break out a five count or really broke any other rules. So this could have just been a regular match. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. I don't know why it is either. <laughs> That's very strange. So yes, Tony, it is inexplicably an ODQ match. Yeah. Oh, uh, there was one thing a little bit I appreciated. Hard does the put the leg up on the rope and hit him. You jump him down. He manages to stop himself at two. He doesn't do a third one. He's a, he's a savvy ring, ring re- general. Yeah. He realizes if I do this a third time, I get countered. That's the rule. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciated that. That's funny. Yeah, the 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 leg lock spot into the sharpshooter. I think was my favorite moment of the match. That was really cool yeah. as a transition. Just the smoothness with which Hart brought it back up. I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> yeah, he's he's done very into that. They all, yeah, they're always in the work all the time. It's very cool. Yeah, for sure. No, I did like that they they played around the ropes too. Mm-hmm. They were all tangled up uh, right on the turnbuckles. <laughs> yeah, you don't always see that. So, okay, so where do I begin? Following Nitro. We have this weird bit where the powers that be tell Piper in the back that he has to go out to the ring and say he sold out because no one will believe him if they blame him for it. Him being Ventruso, obviously. Okay. But we see that. So again, I'm not sure what we're supposed to see and what we're not supposed to see. Because mm-hmm. then he comes out as if we don't know what happened backstage. That's something almost unique to this era it is, of yeah. WCW. This confusion about what reality the wrestlers see and what reality we see. Yeah. I don't get it at all. Yeah. But so, yeah, he he comes out as if we didn't see that, admits to selling out and goes to leave. Goldberg says he used to respect him, and now he doesn't. They run the story throughout the show with other wrestlers, including Kevin Nash, mind you. Talks about how you don't you don't screw over the boys, they don't screw each other over, you know, after lying to the ref to win a powerbomb match. Point. And last year with Goldberg. Yes, yeah, also point, point. Also point. And the finger poke of doom. So, yes. Yeah. It's a little weird that he's the face of this. Yeah, good point. So later on, Breher himself goes back to the fake end office, sadly with no uh, Lepark in the back. I think it's a serious promo. Mm-hmm. He asks the powers that be why they did this. Russo explained that he did it to, quote, make up for Montreal. Because, to be clear, Vince Russo was head writer during that. Okay. Even though I'm pretty sure he didn't have anything to do with that. Wow. So it's not enough that they copied the screw job in some fashion. And that Scott Hudson says, this is Montreal all over again. 
they have to literally have him say, I did it for you to make up for Montreal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Hart is mad about that. He declares the title vacant, apparently thinking people can just do, and offers Goldberg a match, basically a rematch of the previous night. So again, also a rematch, match you just saw. Okay. Also the title online. I mean, at least this one had an inconclusive finish, so you did want to see it resolved. Right. But yeah, I, your point's still taken. <laughs> it's two in a row, man. Yeah. Should have had a powerbomb match again as well, just to make you happy. No, they absolutely should not have. Yeah, no, they didn't. This leads to the main event of that Nitro, where people like Jeff Jarrett trying to interfere on both sides. Bleaker Hennig does as well. But ultimately, it comes down to Ruff being down. Both the Outsiders show up. Scott Hall walking with the correct initially, then walking like he's not hurt. Which is part of my reason why he couldn't wrestle that night. Okay. They decide to attack Goldberg, and they knock him out. There's a really awkward bit. Piper comes in. He tries to cover Goldberg, and he's so committed to that, and even when they're kicking him, he's not going to move. But they have to end the match by having Bret Hart pin Goldberg. They have to pull him off really against his will and hit him with the guitar if he actually stays down. So Bret Hart is now world champion again, or still champion, it's not clear. And he pulls out spray paint. But it's silver spray paint. Because we've reformed the... The NWO. Yep. This uh, group, at this point, features Jeff Jarrett. (laughs) It features Bret Hart, Jeff Jarrett, Kevin Nash, and Scott Hall. It will, uh, upon Thunder, also include Scott Tyner, who comes back. Okay. So, all this stuff on Starcade about... Oh, Hart being not sure what's going on and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And this honestly, like, pretty great idea of a match between two faces where they both trade each other respectfully, even as things get more heated and everything. Pretty great performances, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And the weird ending mm-hmm. all just leads to, by the way, Bret Hart was probably a heel the whole time. Yeah, he but was. But for some reason, chose to reveal it on Nitro rather than on Starcade. Correct. Because reasons. <laughs> because you need to watch Nitro, the more important show of the two, yeah. to see what happens. Okay, look, if you're going to end it in a twist or whatever, it would be better to reveal, even even if you are trying to sell Monday night, you should still end that he is, oh, he betrayed. You know, yeah. That is so much better. Yeah. Do, that, do that tonight. Bret Hart reveals that he was a bad guy and forms the new version of the NWO, and now he's in control of it. You're telling me you think that people would not then tune in on Nitro to be like, oh, what the heck was that all about? Yeah. It it makes no sense. Like, we're going to get more people by not forming the NWO on Starcade than by forming the NWO on Starcade. But yeah. if you're saying that, then what that means is that you think that forming the NWO again is not going to retract people. So mm-hmm. why are you doing it? Right. It's like, it, this. it doesn't make a lick of sense that you decide to do it on the TV show instead of on Starcade for a moment like this. It should be your huge twist Yeah, can end the night and it will be a, you're, you'll be getting booed and everything, but it'll be for a theoretically good reason. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in favor of the NWO being reformed, but I recognize it's a big storyline moment at least. Yeah. Oh, and it's the, like, silver and black now or yeah. something, isn't it? It's the NWO 2000. Blues Brothers 2000. Oh, my gosh. It's the Blues Brothers 2000 of NWO Faction, Jess. That movie wasn't totally horrible. 
<laughs> it did, it's a great it, soundtrack. It did have Riders on the Storm. Yeah, it's a great soundtrack CD, but not a movie. Thunderfong's Darkade. The Inabo is super happy about what they've done. Uh, they pulled a swerve on everybody, yada yada. Goldberg is attacking them backstage. He attacks Jeff Jarrett while he's away. He attacks Hall while he's in Nash's locker room, off camera. And he attacks Kevin Nash in the shower, which they think we don't show much, they just imply it. Bret Hart rushes to his car, speeds away, and as he tells in his book, he apparently hit a patch of black ice while speeding away, nearly swerved by getting control of his car. Uh-huh. Which he says is one of the many reasons why he questioned why he's in WCW, because now suddenly he's stunt driving and he could have been killed. Yes. He flees. Goldberg is mad. He looks there's a limo there. The limo must be for the powers that be. So he starts punching the windows. Mind you, he has his hands all taped up in black tape, so he's like literally punching out windows. Then he gets to the side window. He decides to take his forearm facing away from the limo and starts smashing it sideways against the window. The third time, he makes a definitive impact, splits a piece of glass, which shoots across his arm. Yeah. He obviously severs an artery doing that. The show officially ends with him slamming his fist angry down on the hood of the car. Apparently, they quickly stop filming after that, rush over, wrap his wound, take him to the hospital. He was supposedly within an inch or two of where the, it hit, of losing his forearm completely, meaning amputated off. Oh my gosh. He is out until May. Wow. Leading into the January show, there's a bunch of stuff that happens. They mentioned Jeff Jarrett is injured. Because of the thing, we'll cover Bret Hart, unfortunately, is not able to wrestle on that show. So now Russo's got to rewrite his story. And mind you, he's also had an actual injury again, or re-injury, it's not clear, to Scott Hall, who's written off TV as, quote, just not showing up at the arena, and then tag titles are vacated, as I mentioned before. He has to pitch a new story to the executive committee and TNT people, people in charge of television. His solution is to give Tank Abbott the world title. They don't like that. They tell him, you're no longer the head writer, yet the right as part of a committee. Mm. He says, screw you, in his Brooklyn accent, and leaves. Okay. That's January, just to be clear. There you go again. Yes. And then there's a Red Heart situation. Unfortunately, this world title match had drastic and very real consequences. When Goldberg hit that sidekick to Hart's head, it ended up much more real than it was meant to be. Whether it was timing or Goldberg just not pulling the kick enough, it caught Hart full in the face and gave him a severe concussion. The earlier spot where Hart put on the ring post figure four and collided hard with the floor is thought to have also possibly caused another concussion. Unaware of just how bad his condition was, Hart continued wrestling over the next several shows and further aggravated his injuries until he was forced to vacate the title in January. Hart would make sporadic appearances in 2000, but was unable to return to performing in matches and was released in October 2000, retiring from professional wrestling. Hart did ultimately get to wrestle a small few further matches about 10 years later, when he finally buried the hatchet with Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels and returned to the WWF, now the WWE, in 2010. But 
Starcade 99 brought an unexpected and sad end to the career of one of the greatest in-ring performers in professional wrestling history. <sighs> yeah. It's an accidental thing. Sure. From my understanding, it is not just that hit, but the pileup of him continuing to wrestle, not being aware that he's as hurt as he is, that worsens the condition to the extent that he really has to stop. Yeah, he wrestles a hardcore match against Terry Funk before his retirement. Yeah, so that's, that not, should... that's not going to help. Yeah. No, it did not help, fortunately. I'm not going to repeat stupid stuff that they repeated, but sometimes it can cost you your life or your career each time you go out there. Mm-hmm. Not everything goes according to plan, and uh, I think that's why some people value performers. Mm-hmm. Because at any time, when any sport or career, where there's a high degree of physicality you will miss that spot or you'll miss that that one thing and uh even if it doesn't end your career immediately it can ultimately start that spiral Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's one of those (sighs) tragic things about pro wrestling i think that um sometimes it's a quick thing sometimes it's the accumulation over the years but um people put on these great performances but it changes the their quality of life mm-hmm. some of them finish up well enough and manage to still have a a good good life afterwards and some of them you know never really do and for one reason or another they're forever changed by the experience it can be accumulation, like McFoley over the years had, you know, all these things, and he just doesn't really walk that well anymore, and no. and all, and or it can be a very sudden moment, like uh, like Bret Hart, or like what takes Shawn Michaels out for several years, yeah, or even the skyscraper match. No, oh, yeah, the Cornette, yeah, 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 yeah. There's risk to the profession. I think sometimes it's easy to forget that and. I mean, it's the common refrain you hear all the time of, uh, wrestling's fake, right? But yeah. it's a performance art that has very, very real risk. And unfortunately, sometimes we get a really clear reminder of those risks, and this is one of those cases. Yeah, it's true. I'm certain that there was still art that Bret Hart was going to be able to perform in that yeah. ring, and... It's a sad moment among many that happen over the years, but it's just one of the starkest portrayals, I think, of of the risk associated with professional wrestling. For sure, yeah. We don't take it lightly, for sure. Yeah. The show fades out, and Starcade 99 is done. It's a very sudden ending to the show. They just kind of... What they look at each other in stunned shock, and we're out. <laughs> they seem like a to-be-continued at the bottom. Yeah. So, overall thoughts on Starcade 99? It's not a great show, overall. <laughs> yeah. It's a good summary for it. There's a, matches that have promise, but for another, they don't deliver. There's matches where they deliver in the ring to a certain degree, but then something dumb is written for that, whether it's lying about power bombs or this or that mm-hmm. and take away from it. There's stuff that was obviously never going to be that great to begin with, like Oklahoma and anything. 
and then you ruin it further by him yapping the whole time, yeah. distracting from what could have, but more time and effort and none of his nonsense, a really good match between Vampiro and Dr. Death. It does thankfully turn around a bit. You have a strong performance from Sting and Luger, even giving a slightly modified house show match, I would say. Mm-hmm. They have the story you have to keep going forward. It's a shame that this is the start of the story and not the climax of the story, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't take away from the matches. And then it weirdly rebounds back down again with <laughs> how they screw up the Power Bomb match. Yeah. Which I maintain had potential. It was not going to be great, but it, it could be a good spectacle of big guys mm-hmm. playing each other around, and they actually do the right story to it. They mostly get the landing with the final two matches. They don't screw up the finish, thankfully, with the Benoit Jarrett match. But the final night, unfortunately, is just confusion and nonsense. And it's just, they want you to watch Nitro. If you watch the pay-per-view, that's great, but it's more important than watch Nitro and watch Thunder and Saturday Night and whatever other show they're running. Mm-hmm. And that's why they've got 120,000 people buying this instead of 450,000 or 650,000. Yeah. yeah. I'd always be curious, though, if, like, you know, they say they sell out the next night at Nitro. It'd be funny if it was the same arena. Like, they sell out for Nitro, but <laughs> yeah. not for Starcade. Well, that's half of the same matches. <laughs> yeah, that's like half Especially. the same show, too. So Right. Very few things fully deliver, and it's very long. It's not actually longer than their shows, it just feels longer. Mm-hmm. Because they play video package, then a promo, and then a match. Yeah. Instead of one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think, John, you had said, well, we were taking a break at some point. This feels like it should have been a four-hour show. Well, I mean, it, it's packed with a lot of stuff. You're, you got multiple stories going on. You have introduction of new characters, people that are willing to take crowbars to the face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you have rivalries and dissent between teams. You have betrayals, uh, some other unseen hand rolling the dice. You have people that can apparate into existence with darkness. You have... <laughs> all kinds of weird phenomena, like none of the pyrotechnics are working right. You have uh, probably my, one of the greatest ladder matches I've ever seen. You have people that go on there that they're lost a match and then gain a match to a good effect. There's a lot of narrative. I think that there was something to be learned with each match, even though if it was like, wow, I just lost some time. <laughs> <laughs> Going to a fugue state a bit, yeah. Right. I mean... Those 0.9 seconds of Seven's character was very important to me. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lot of stuff in there, and there's a lot of recap, and to someone that doesn't watch all the other stuff, I know I missed some things, but it was packed. They had a big show planned, and they forgot to write the ending. Like, they wrote it in order. (laughs) Yeah. And they just forgot the ending. Mm-hmm. You, you need to pull up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if it means giving a predictable outcome. Yeah. Sure. That, I think, gets at one of the central things that people find wrong with Vince Russo's booking philosophy in particular, is that he seems to be so interested in doing swerves in fooling the audience Mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter whether it's logical, Mm -hmm. whether it's good, whether it makes even a lick of sense. As long as he fools you, 
he's happy. That's the trouble here is like, sometimes it's great to do the predictable ending. Your average Marvel superhero film or something like that. Yeah, most of those end with the superhero beating the supervillain and saving the day. Yeah. That's fine, because that's part of why people go to see those movies, is to see their favorite superheroes save the day. Yeah. So now it's okay to do a twist on that, like they did with Infinity War, but that should be the exception, not the rule. Exactly. You want to leave people happy. Either either happy, or at least invested in seeing what happens next, and finding what happens next. The way that this show works gives you neither. Yeah. Well, they need to focus on the journey mm-hmm. and and the obstacles and the, I mean, I guess some of that story, and it's kind of hard to fit all that still in a show. But, you know, you know the destination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'd be like, oh, the hobbits go through Mordor, now they're in the Shire again. <laughs> no Mount Doom. Twist. Yeah, he just suddenly teleports to the Shire rather than, yeah. It's like, yeah, that would be surprising. And Gandalf actually took the ring, and he's just controlling his hobbit's mind, so he's okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can think up any twist you want for any story ever, as long as you aren't burdened by it making any sense. Yeah. Well, WCW's got that. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, an absolute mess of a show. Starcade 99 is unquestionably one of the worst Starcades, and I think it comes down to a few factors. First, absolutely nothing gets any time to breathe. Yes. We are constantly switching from segment to segment, match to match. Nothing gets time to build drama. We're not allowed to take a moment to have an emotional reaction because the show so quickly moves on to something else. Wrestlers, world title match slightly accepted, barely get a few seconds after their match to try to build off the events they've just performed. Exemplified best, I think, by Sid Vicious just kind of sullenly walking away from the ring in the background, even after Kevin Nash blatantly and ludicrously cheated to win their match. Yeah, or Evan Courageous just leaving after they both betrayed him and took his title. Yeah. It's like, that would get a reaction on any other Starcade. Yeah. The backstage promos are just sound bites. Even charismatic and skilled promo guys like Diamond Dallas Page don't have the slightest hope of accomplishing anything meaningful with them because they only have time for two to four sentences before, oh my gosh, we need to move to something else right now. Yeah. And that something else, it tends to be insane, outright stupid, or both. People change alliances in a heartbeat. Faces act like heels and heels act like faces. Referees go flying every which way. People win matches by telling refs that they won matches. The rules are more optional than ever before. None of it makes any sense. Some performers manage to rise above the madness and make something of the tiny slots of time that they're given to at least some degree, but even some of WCW's best can barely scrape together an entertaining performance. The odds are against them so much that it takes everything they can do just to pull together something acceptable. Everything seems to have taken several large leaps backwards. The entrance music is almost universally without any sense of character or melody. The announced team, with a few exceptions, can be almost entirely ignored, which is probably for the best, since for much of the show, the sound balance is so bad that you can barely hear much of what they say. The ring work is mostly bad, with miscommunications, a lack of chemistry, and a whole load of botches, at times very dangerous ones. It's a mess. An awful, awful mess. 
Some of it might work if someone had just been able to take the ideas and give them another pass to refine them, sure, but some of it is just unsalvageable. Even the things that go somewhat right are often colored by things that go very much wrong. There's a few watchable bits of the show, but the only things I can think of to suggest someone maybe seek out and watch in particular are maybe the Benoit Jarrett ladder match and the bit with Sting predicting Elizabeth's heel turn. WCW tried to do something new with Starcade 1999, and it absolutely did not work. Yeah. One of the WrestleCraft books, I forget which. They get a great analogy about what works and doesn't work with ventures of booking. So they say, imagine if you ordered from Domino's an honest pizza, and every time you ordered Domino's pizza, you would get delivery, open the box, and be a newspaper. You'd be very surprised they would have fooled you, but how many times would you order from that Domino's? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, to carry the pizza analogy, this show is like if you ordered a pepperoni pizza and you got a pizza with, you know, pepperoni, mushrooms, sausage, bacon, anchovies, green peppers, banana peppers, chicken avocado, hot sauce. Yeah. Everything that you could think of piled on there. There's probably something you like mixed in amongst all that stuff, but it's blatantly not what you asked for. Yeah. And you have to dig through all the other nonsense and ridiculousness to get to something that you like. Yeah. It's work. (laughs) Pick off all the other stuff and you might get to your dang pepperoni, but... (laughs) Yeah. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just go order another pizza from a different company? Exactly. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> now John's hungry. Sorry, John. <laughs> All right. Let's do our match of the night and MVP. Probably a given. It's the only match I really didn't complain about or critique that much. Match of the night's got to be Chris Benoit versus Jeff Darren and Ladder Match for US title. As far as MVP, so on one hand, Benoit delivers an actually good promo. Even his short sound by one is not bad. And it was a really good ladder match. Jeff Jarrett's hand, he has a match I don't like as much, but still solid performance in the bunkhouse brawl. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's really good in ladder match. As silly as this might sound, what really came down to deciding the final thing was when you're recapping his promo before the match, and he first missed slap nuts. <laughs> I'm like, well, I, but honestly, the mindset was, he did two good matches, and he, as far as I remember, he didn't call in slap nuts. Oh. <laughs> I literally said, I'm like, well, that seals it. Sorry, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, my MVP is Chris Benoit. John? I, too, would choose the latter match. <laughs> it is tough to make that decision, Jeff. You know, was in a lot of the show. I mean, I've never yeah. seen so many guitars explode. Uh, I haven't been to enough concerts. Yeah. (laughs) But Benoit gave us something. Story-wise, he he planned that. I'm probably going to choose Jeff Jarrett. Only because he was in so many things. Not because I liked him in all those things. Mm -hmm. I think he was just... Had his his hand in multiple stuff throughout the night. So he kind of held what little there was of the show together. Mm Mm-hmm. No, yeah, it's pretty logical. Like, I was yeah. torn between him, too. For my match tonight, 
brief honorable mention to Sting versus Luger for sure. some good storyline stuff and a good moment and waking me back up. But it's the Jarrett versus Benoit ladder match. I mean, no question. That is by far the best match on the show. Yeah. It was the only match that I felt was done well across the board. Not just in being reasonably acceptable like a couple others, but actually managing to be good on a show where very little was. Yeah. It has creative spots, performed well, and is particularly impressive considering that it was originally supposed to be Benoit versus Hall, and that Jarrett already wrestled on the same night. So it's a good, exciting match, even despite the odds being a little bit stacked against it. Yeah. And there's just not that many good matches on this show. So, yeah, it uh, it easily takes it. For MVP, I'm tempted to give this to Diamond Dallas Page for getting something remotely watchable out of a crowbar on a pole match against David Flair. Yeah. But I'm giving it to Jeff Jarrett as well. He wrestled in two of the longer matches of the night and two of the harder-hitting ones besides. Like you, Al, I didn't really like the bunkhouse brawl, but the latter match was very good, and it seems like there was just a lot put on his shoulders tonight, and he proved very reliable. It's not his fault that some of the things being put on his shoulders weren't great to begin with. He did his job as best he could in bad situations, and that earns him my MVP. And I'm also going to give an anti-MVP tonight. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that would be Mark Johnson, referee for the Powerbomb match, <laughs> for one of the worst jobs selling a referee bump that I have ever seen in my life. Absolutely laughably bad. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that wraps up our review of Starcade 99. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed the show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for our attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Join us next time for Starcade 2000. Unedited. Unpredictable. Unreal. It's the 18th Starcade. And the last. A series that has run since 1983 reaches its final iteration. Will Starcade go out with a bang or with a whimper? We'll find out next time. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins. Signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. And watching this may make you wish for Y2K. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Spice suddenly climbs up on the apron and makes out with Courageous, and Medusa slaps Courageous, and Spike hits the gentlest punch to the balls. Wait, did I call her Spike? You did. I did, sorry. Let's see.